Welcome to the Marshall Pruitt Podcast and our week in sports cars show. I don't know if you can hear it. I've got a big old dumb grin on my face because I have not been able to record this show with my brother at the other end of this Skype infused line. Graham Goodwin for a couple of weeks now, vaguely settled at home. Graham, we are, I can, I can claim 10% unpacked. I'm hoping to get that up to 20 or 30 by the end of the weekend. That's not a joke, but so happy that you and I get to just get back into a normal routine here. Weekend Sports Cars, brought to you by Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers, and my English brother, Gigi, from DailySportsCar.com. Well, it is a delight to hear your voice, Marshall. I know it's been one hell of a journey. I know there's a long way to go on that journey for you, but it's great to have you back. It's great to be doing the show. We'll be a little later than normal this week. I know we're going to be working very hard to get that back on track. But boy, oh boy, oh boy, have there been things that we need to talk about. I have heard. Now, that I'm, we're just going to start <laughs> off the show with a rumor. I have heard that the Grand Am Rolex series has a new vice president. Have you heard that? Really? Yes. Uh, yeah, it's a, is, it, uh, is it because there's an objection to their going back to Rotary for DPI? Uh, that's one of them that I've also heard. Again, I'm just throwing out rumors. I know we try and be proper journalists here and only speak about things we've quadruple confirmed. I've heard there could be some date changes in the ILMC. So another one, again, I know you're chasing and I'm chasing that as well. You have been away a long time, haven't you? Dear, dear me. But uh, back, back, well, as the song goes, back to life, should back to we, reality. Yeah, should we talk about uh, the other big rumor of the week that Peugeot might be pulling out of LMP1? I don't know. It has been a while since I've been here. No, joking aside, and I'm not kidding, Le Mans Libre today published a story saying that they might be coming to LMP1. I'm that, really not kidding. That would be that would be awesome. I would. Story, story's been around the houses uh, more than once in the last three weeks, has it? Dear me. Wow. Well, as we always do to start off the show, we say thank you to you all, dear listeners. Thank you. A hashtag me personally. Thank you for your patience, knowing that the timing of our weekend sports car show and its publishing is usually fallen Tuesday, Wednesday, sometimes Thursday. Well. It's Friday now. I think the last one might have gone up on a Sunday. Uh, Again, sincere apologies for issues on the home front, keeping ready recording and or publishing from falling along more routine timelines. And with that said, and with one more thank you to Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers, we need to have you, Graham, do as you always do to get the show rolling by choosing the first of our multi-topic show giving us where we're going to start it's going to be IMSA uh, to welcome you back to the fray uh, and of course with the IMSA season just completed with Petit Le Mans and with that uh, surprise for most uh, appointments of John Doonan as the IMSA president there is no shortage of questions on that front although the collation of these questions did rather predate John's confirmation in post and I think actually I'm going to ask the first question this time Marshall Pruitt John Doonan as the new IMSA president discuss (laughs) it's the worst move they've ever made Uh, I believe they are going to shudder at the end of the year 
Now this was the this was the perfect solution. I learned about this a long time ago. I think this will at least to date go down as the news item that I sat on under I don't want to say embargo, but sat on for the longest duration of time. So happy in knowing that it was coming and also knowing that it would catch many in the sport by surprise just because I believe, Graham, maybe you can testify to this. So few would have considered a post-Mazda John Doonan scenario. I mean, he is Mazda to so many people. He is viewed as the, the singular entity representing all that they do in North American motor racing just fathoming Mazda Motorsports going forward without him there. I believe that's the reason nobody would have dreamt of him becoming president. Uh, granted, the need for a president was not revealed until, what, a couple weeks ago, three, four weeks ago, a month ago, something like that. But he was uh, he was in position a good while ago, and having learned about it, can just say, I truly cannot think of a better person to take the challenges they have and work through them in the unique way they will require treatment. What does that mean quickly? They are facing financial crunches. Maybe not today, could possibly be tomorrow, weeks from now. Before we get to the Rolex 24, for sure, NASCAR has been losing money. NASCAR has been spending money. They've just reacquired the International Speedway Corporation, which they had uh, taken public. That is their conglomeration of racetracks that they own here in the U.S., most of them which NASCAR competes on. Uh, This is, from a parental standpoint, IMSA's owner definitely facing a future where they are tightening their belts more and more and more where I believe this is going to be helpful to have Mr. Doonan in position is for the vast majority of his time leading Mazda in its motorsports endeavors. They've never been flush with cash. And so going out and seeking partnerships, finding sponsors to offset some of the budget shortfalls and whatnot, this has been a ready, ready part of his, I guess, job description travel routine Uh, it seems like whenever he and i would speak in the past it was him getting on a flight just getting off of a flight driving to and from airports having met with sponsors he was courting or had signed to then service that relationship so i look at forget you know we'll get to bop and all that stuff in a moment just knowing what imsa is about to face not because they've done anything wrong but because their owners are just having to trim money in every possible way. I would expect IMSA's budget to be decreased right away and that to continue to happen in the coming years. Therefore, someone at the top of the organization for IMSA having relationships, having experience, Graham, and having to go out and find new partners on top of a weather tech, on top of Michelin, all the auto manufacturers that are invested Go and find some new entitlement partners to truly 
help bring more money into the paddock to allow IMSA to continue to do big and better things. So that's the first thing. And this is why I, I see Dooner as a perfect fit. Would also say that his understanding from the competitive side certainly helps. This is a person who's sat in on every DPI 2.0 meeting. Uh, while Mazda might not have a GT3 vehicle or GTLM vehicle, just someone who knows the needs of the paddock, where the sport's going in terms of rules, regulations, timing for certain formulas, Graham, expiring and new ones needing to be created. I think this is a, a space that he's lived in that will help immensely. I'd say relationships would be another one. Uh, not speaking ill, of former IMSA president Scott Atherton, but he was seen very much as a executive by those within IMSA. Not so much a hands-on man of the people type, very much person in perfectly pressed suits at all times in living in that, you know, the upper register of what took place. Dunin's more of a shaken hands How's your mom doing? Is she okay after the surgery she had? How's your son doing? Did he did his little league team win the championship this year because he knows everybody? And so where that might not sound like it holds a lot of value as the president of an organization, when you need to pull people together to make things happen, to get consensus, to get some people to do more, again, it could be manufacturer spending money, creating some new opportunities. I just have to believe, Graham, that who they have hired ticks all the boxes that are needed for where the series is going, plus could address some of the deficiencies they've had in ways that, frankly, needed someone new at the helm to be able to do so. Lastly, having been on the receiving end of the Swinging pendulum of BOP accuracy, uh, the uproar in certain portions of the paddock in certain classes this year in IMSA over BOP wildly advantaging, advantaging? I don't even know if I'm getting my words right today. I'm with uh, back into new words. With yes, advantaging um, some manufacturers, disadvantaging other manufacturers. This was not a pretty year for IMSA's competition department in that very specific regard. And knowing that there was a revolt with one manufacturer and some of, I should say, the teams representing one manufacturer uh, later in the season, that being Cadillac, uh, as I, in something that I wrote, this is an area where a lot of goodwill is going to need to be restored. What I don't know and can't say is whether... That can be fixed, Graham, by coaching up and hopefully helping those who got things so wrong to now get them so right. Or if, as we often see when a sports team is underperforming and getting rid of the star players is really the option, they decide to make a change in, some, in the coaching rotation in some way whether it's a head coach, assistant coach, whatever. Is this something where the competition department might need, as uh, IMSA has done with its president, fresh blood, fresh view, fresh approach, 
I don't know if I should say new skills, but different skills or complementary skills uh, on top of whatever they already have. Not an easy road ahead for John, but I would not task anyone else with this but him. Uh, I'll add this. It's not our habit to go lengthily into both answering the same question, but in my uh, certainly not as extensive view, but relatively extensive experience of meeting John in a whole range of contexts. What a stunning individual he is! What a what a genuinely impressive guy he is! And right now, moving aside from the entitlement sponsors, but just in terms of the understanding of the tasks that are currently facing the OEMs, he is a man that has battled for years his corner to continue ever greater efforts to promote the master brand through uh, motorsports not an easy task and he understands that and more and more of those manufacturers are going to come under those pressures there can be no better skill set therefore to understand uh, and to realize where the red lines are going to be in those negotiations than the man who's fought that fight the man who's fought that fight and fought it so well i have to say when i found out found out about it um it was, I think my first words back to you, my friend, were, wow. Um, and it's it's a great appointment. I, I hope we see more of those kind of appointments in world motorsports, that we see more of these guys that have got the real world understanding of the challenges that are inherent now in the sports and in the industry, helping to shape our sport going forward. Because boy, oh boy, we need the help. And the knock-on from this as well is who will lead Mazda? going forward uh, i know that they do not have a replacement for john um i would say and i do believe that he uh, if possible or in whatever way that he is going to either i don't know if help is the right way to put it uh, but in some way try and assist possibly in the uh, finding and whatnot of uh, who will replace him and that person, I would say, is going to be equally tasked in leading Mazda forward. And while I think that there are many great managers, someone, a nation builder like Dunin, because although a lot of it has not been reported and we're not going to break that vault open today, hasn't always been 100% consensus within that manufacturer that, hey, we need to do all the things that Dunan says we should do. And so currying favor, changing negative views, getting folks on board, and ultimately being able to do these big and ambitious things, that's that's been a big part of what has allowed Dunan to do the things that he has done. And so while the DPI program is the big showy thing that everybody knows, you look at all the other things that they have done for the past 10, 15 years while he's been there, and you know, open-wheel touring cars, we've got a TCR vehicle coming. Uh, there's just so many things the guy has done in so many areas, making one of the widest footprints among any manufacturer in North America, in motor racing, just period. Not just IMSA, just there are very few that do as much as Mazda happens to put forth. And it's because of this guy. And so whomever is going to be the next John Doonan, 
It's not just going to be a case of managing the programs that are signed off on. It's the, huh, (laughs) can you get the marketing department to give you the budget to do that thing that uh, was already put in place? Or are they going to see you maybe as not having the clout? Maybe some of the people that have been naysayers about whatever program might see this as an opportunity to go, "Uh aha, the next person coming in, probably not going to be able to stave off my advances like the last guy did. Could things shrink or diminish? You would hope not, obviously. But yeah, this is a, this is a unique void to fill, Graham. If this were any other manufacturer, or not any, but many other manufacturers losing their director of competition, director of racing, whatever, you could probably lob out a number of names where someone else could backfill that and you'd almost never notice that change. Eh, This is going to demand a lot of somebody to keep the party going in the same old way. So we're looking for a name that's inherently linked with Master and that culture that's got a racing heritage that, that Johnny Herbert, got to be Johnny Herbert. I was going to say Johnny Molum since he's retired, I believe, and also manages. Has he? Uh, well, oh no, he's, I just got the release. He's back. Yes, he's back. Uh, competing yeah. for Peugeot at Le Mans. Funnily enough, and he won next year. Um, oh no, just retired. Apologize. Another Again. release came through. Yes, um, but he does manage Ollie Jarvis, so you know maybe there's Ooh. something there. Ooh. All right, should we get going with real questions from real people instead of the two muppets <laughs> who uh, talk into the microphones? <laughs> Let's do it. And, um, well, one of the things, as you quite rightly said on John Doonan's to-do list, is going to be, of course, DPI 2.0. Number of questions from a range of kind of uh, uh, approaches to DPI 2.0. We've got one from Justin on Twitter, uh, after hearing comments from both Ford and Scott Atherton. Scott Atherton, remember him? Mm. Yes. Uh, Sounds like Ford joining DPI 2.0 comes down to whether or not it will be allowed to race at Le Mans. Is it that simple with Ford? Is a Le Mans entry the only thing that brings them to DPI? We've got a further one to do with DPI and hypercar tie-up question incoming, whether or not uh, a unified platform is possible. When would that, when might that be if it is going to happen? Um, you know the stories uh, here, MP. What's going on? Ryan Comerford, another one. More said about car, car and DPI convergence, uh, driven, amongst other things, by comments from uh, Mark Rushbrook. Uh, does it stand a better chance of happening than it did when it was pushed away uh, 2017, etc., etc., etc.? Why don't we I've split got, I've the, got to take this one. Yeah, well, I was going to say, why don't we split the old word answer in here because – you are most qualified to speak on the possible prototypey convergence, yep. and I can probably help super quick uh, just to clear off the Ford part, which is having spoken at length with Mark Rushbrook recently, he did indicate very strongly that Lamont is probably the thing that gets a DPI program over the hurdle. And okay. without that, I just without him stating it that heavily could just take by the tone of the conversation, how it was phrased. This sounds like it needs to be while something that we fussed over months ago in terms of Ford and DPI 2.0, a couple of years from now being hybridization and the yep. 
energy level, the, the horsepower level being unleashed, being the catalyst. If it's a big number, we're there. If not, no way. I would not dismiss that. I would say that's still something that is important, but I would just update the topic here in saying that I'm sure if they do go forward, that will be a thing, but not before some sort of green light to bring these DPIs to Le Mans would be feasible and possible. And that's a part I'd love for you to fill us in on Graham, because what have we spoken about in the past so heavily? It's been hypercar, car, car, DPI. Are they, could they use DPI's formula? Could that allow this unification come across, play in our series, we'll play in yours? All about blending. Could there be a scenario where hypercar is, as Juan Montoya would say, what it is, and maybe there's a separate Le Mans-only class, as we have seen decades previous, for something from IMSA that is their unique prototype, in this case, DPI, and no co-mingling under one class designation. I think we're looking at the potential right now for something rather more coherent than that. So in terms of time frames, let's make that clear. Hypercar is coming. It is coming for the next season of the FI World Endurance Championships. That means those cars will be racing for the first time in September of 2020 and at Le Mans in 2021. 2022 is when we expect to see DPI 2.0. That sits uncomfortably, of course, with the start of uh, a WC season. It will come in the middle of it. So come what may, I think the first place that you will see DPI 2.0 racing is in the IMSA WeatherTech Sports Car Championship in 2022. At the moment, my view, informed by the fact that I know some of the people who are driving for this, and I'm not going to name names, but there are some very, very surprising names in that list, is that I currently expect that there is every chance that we will see a combined class in the World Endurance Championship between hypercars and DPI 2.0 in effectively midway through year one of DPI 2.0, not just for Le Mans, but for the whole World Endurance Championship. That is, I believe, a real-world option right now. Now, what does that reflect? I think it reflects the real world we've just described in the conversation about John Doonan. It is hard to get these um, programs over the line. Uh, We can't be expecting OEMs to commit to... uh, programs that don't tick every single box they would like it to do and if what they're telling you and they're telling you in multiple is that they would like to do something that's a global formula they'd like to race in north america they'd like to race on the world stage then what sanctioning body is going to be insane enough to turn away multiple manufacturers right now um i'm here to tell you it's not a supposition there are conversations underway they're underway in some very powerful company And right now, I think it looks better than it ever has that we could be heading for a uh, combined class featuring car car and wherever that gets to by 2022-23 and DPI 2.0 midway through 
their first season in North America. That's where I think we are. There we go. We should just end the show right now. It's not going to get any better. <laughs> right. Let's kick on. Um, Johnny Schultz, is it true? Some cars at Petit Le Mans only had to start the race to achieve the overall victory in their respective category. If so, why doesn't IMSA have distance requirements in order for a car to be classified? A great question. They don't because they've chosen not to. Yep. I, 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 think I you could say a lot more, but I don't think there's a need. Given but the we, options we are- on how to... well how they choose to structure it is if you start the race, you are therefore eligible for at minimum last place points. And so I believe there could be some sort of mindset, Graham of how hard do we want to make this to understand (laughs) knowing that sports car racing can be just that a very mind bending proposition. So if I'm trying to come up with logical reasons to do things the way that they do, it might be a case of these the minimum amount of points you could earn if you take the start and therefore are considered to be a part of the race. And therefore, at minimum, you carry that the last place points with you. And if those happen to be enough to put the title out of reach for someone else, then therefore, if you successfully take the start, you would be considered the champion. Uh, You are the champion. As for making some sort of distance-based requirement, they could, obviously. Uh, That's the fun thing about things like this. It's purely elective, right? There's no one else telling them how to do anything. This is just how they choose to do it. Absolutely right. Uh, All sorts of weird and wacky rules and all sorts of uh, championship around the world. Uh, Here's another one for Michael Metropolis. Great name, Michael. That's Michael Metro 97. Why do MPC cars need lights if they don't race at night? Regarding the IMSA Sport uh, Series of the Michelin Pilot Challenge and Prototype Challenge, if these cars don't run in darkness, why do they run headlights? Is it simply to comply with global GT4, TCR and LMP3 specs? I love questions like these because I would have never have come up with it. (laughs) I would say, Michael, that I don't race at night with the vehicles I own, and yet they have headlights. Uh, The reality is these are production-based vehicles. And so Mm -hmm. to preserve, I was about to say persevere. I don't know what is wrong with me today. But to preserve the fact that these are truly production-based vehicles, and the fact I would say that manufacturers are trying to promote this through sales, uh, there would be an absolute requirement for that. I mean, in in most instances, side mirrors are not needed. Uh, in, and I'm not just saying specific or anything related to uh, the MPC, but if we look at the bigger category, there are a number of classes where they have actual video cameras providing rear view. In theory, you could lop off the side mirrors. There's probably a lot of things on the cars that you don't, quote, need, but are kept and maintained because they uphold the traditional, I guess, silhouette of what is considered to be a vehicle. So uh, in theory, you probably don't need roofs on a lot of these cars. Uh, You have ample protection with cages and such. So you probably, that might actually be a fun thing to do. 
maybe we should solicit this now, Graham. If a manufacturer of a GT3 or GT4-based car wanted to send one to me, I am willing to cut off as many things that I can think of that they don't need and then just see what it is, what it looks like. So to Michael's point in this specific class, how a GT4 car is used and TCR car is used in the uh, Michelin Pilot Challenge Series, those lights are not needed. Granted, if you were to take those cars to a number of other championships in the world where they do run at night, then you would. So I don't see a lot of series-specific allowances to take things off or add things just simply because uh, in one domestic championship, their usage might not be required. Uh, I'll add just one point here. It's a point that came my way through oh, a day job a long, long time ago where rather rather bizarrely I was responsible for answering questions about legal vehicle standards in the UK. And uh, in a conversation, which was not dramatically different from this, it was around special vehicles on the road. And if you weren't planning to drive that car at night, why would you need the uh, the lights? And uh, it was a police source came up with, I, th- I thought, one of those great little uh, answers, which is a neat encapsulation of it all. Lights are on vehicles for two reasons. They are so that you can see and so that you can be seen. And there is actually uh, some validity in the latter part of that for cars racing in any series, and particularly in poor weather, remember, uh, where uh, lights front and rear are pretty important to be seen in, you know, in rain, in uh, in poor visibility. So it's not just about cutting through the darkness. It's about other competitors seeing you as well. I'm uh, going to move on to Status Cocker, one of our regular questioners. It Thanks, is D- Absolutely. It is DT- uh, DPI, uh, BOP. Is it time for IMSA, Status says, to take seriously the DPI's BOP? It seemed throughout the year any change was made to either give a winning car, winning pace to a car to make it really slow. It's not happening to every race, but the cars were definitely not equal. Hope it will improve for next year. We know IMSA has been top in terms of applying BOP in the past. Seems odd to favor certain cars in some races. First thing we're going to say, Stathis, welcome to IMSA. You are its newest prototype team owner because you <laughs> sound like just about every team principal or owner of a dpi team that i spoke with in 2019 they too <laughs> wish the degree of seriosity uh was employed that that you wish was employed and uh, again i know it's easy to take shots i'm not trying to take easy shots there was i am confident in saying a lot of effort put in to getting things right where things get curiouser and curiouser is how then in so many instances things got wrong if you have oodles and oodles graham of data just so much that you can't even fathom how in-depth the data happens to be it's coming in live it's it's true live telemetry coming in it's downloads with even bigger data sets it just all the timing data sector speeds trap speeds mile per hour this and i mean in theory you would be so overwhelmed with information 
there'd be almost no way to get things wrong, which just makes things hard to fathom when using the Acura example. There were, when Acura won its first race last year, came at mid-Ohio, May of 2018, those cars were so much faster than any of the other cars. It was a foregone conclusion that they were going to win, and they did. There were times this year where the Acuras, actually the majority of this season, the Acuras were just on a different plane. And so no surprise, they had, for the most part, salted away the championship well before we got to the season finale. There were, some, of course, some scenarios where if this happens and that happens, someone else could get ahead. But again, by and large, man, it really looked like the title was going to be going through the Acuras uh, before we even got to the halfway point of the season. We then, Graham, saw Mazda. Mazda got the big old BOP change of happiness, and they were untouchable. Uh, there was that one win at Road America, granted, where the I believe the Acuras were on pole, led the majority of the race, were clearly faster than any other DPI, and yet rear tire wear took away their ability to win, and Mazda got by. So it was a bit of a, a surprise. But nonetheless, we spent most of the year with either Acura or Mazda being dominant and BOP played, I would say, the greatest role in that ability to happen. So where this, where this just gets frustrating, and I know Stathis is expressing this. I have certainly I expressed this in the beginning, speaking about John Doonan and what lies ahead for him. With all the information that is held, with all the folks that are hired meant to come up with BOP tables that equalize. Not saying perfectly but at least something where you should not in theory but in fact go to every race and see that among all the manufacturers i know we're talking dpi here but let's extend it to every class where performance balancing is used when done properly you should have whatever manufacturers are competing in that class all standing a fair shot of winning based on pace with the best drivers and the best teams operating each model. Each of those models should stand a relatively equal chance of winning, if not being on the podium. And so when you watch a competition and in DPI, there being four models, only one, a single model representing Nissan, but the others, there's at least two of each, if not more. And you see clearly there's one out of the four. <laughs> you know on Saturday during qualifying, oh, geez, <laughs> unless, unless they run into things, things blow up or things fall off, give them the trophy now. It's over. And it's all because people who don't drive the cars, don't engineer the cars, have made decisions that are just wrong. And we're seeing it manifest in individual lap time, Then even more importantly, in long stints come the race, and that advantage is played out to an even greater degree. So when you have, in DPI's situation this past season, Graham, four brands 
and one, and I don't care who, Cadillac, Acura, Nissan, Mazda, one is clearly above the rest. And it doesn't just happen once, but again, and again, and again. And maybe the baton of advantage gets passed to another. You go, oh, hey, great. Now this one's winning a bunch. But maybe that's great for fans of that model. But if you're just a fan of competence, I don't, I truly don't get it, Stathis. That's why I believe, hashtag me personally, changes have to be made. Uh, If the same people keep messing up the same thing, maybe it's time. Uh, Just tack on here quickly, Graham, to close. So the Cadillacs got beaten up badly, right? They're the ones who were just murdered by BOP indecision. Clearly, action was required. None was taken over and over and over again. There was that intervention I've written about, we've spoken about, where the Cadillac teams, independent of the manufacturer, called a red alert meeting. I mean, senior officials from NASCAR were there. Not just talking himself. I'm talking the big, big brass. Not only were asked to be there, but turned up. And there were some significant changes that followed. We did see the Cadillac end up winning at Petit Le Mans. We did see the Acuras run very well. We saw Mazda in with a shot to win. Nissan was never really there, but again, not a big deal. You know, John Bennett had some issues, ran off course to start the race, and, you know, they were playing from behind. But we did see at the season finale, Graham, where it did look like, I don't know if I'd say, barring the Nissan, the other three were all equal. Looked like two of them were definitely the strongest, but we did see a pretty big fix by the final race. Outcome, though, brother, is by that point, championship was more or less done. So uh, I don't believe that it's a case of taking things in an informal way or lacking a desire to be accurate. But, man, sometimes when you just continually fail a test, you need to get someone else in that seat. Let's see if someone else or others can pass the test. Let's wait and see what the new president decides. Uh, he's got a he's got one heck of a to do list, hasn't he? Um, well, one thing he won't have to decide, but somebody will, uh, and that is a question uh, from Graham Ingleby. Uh, Marshall, now that Bill Orbelins equaled the record of sixty IMSA wins, do you think he's going to go one better and set a new record? And if so, will it be with Turner Motorsport again? Absolutely and absolutely, no doubt. I think that's. A- I, I I tend to agree. Why would you change a winning formula for them? Can um, I, can I well, add in here that I love the fact that Bill's success in tying not my brother's record and just recent success since, quote, graduating from the full-time, full-factory BMW uh, GTLM effort, I love the fact that the success he's had with Turner Motorsport, you know, his, his oldest relationship, uh, in terms of BMW teams, I believe. They're doing it in the frickin' zombie mobile. <laughs> the the oldest <laughs> chassis in IMSA. I mean, th- this thing, uh, I, I know I mention this every now and then, but I, I mean, we're not too far away from that thing being eligible for running up the hill at Goodwood. Um, this <laughs> thing, right? I mean, this is a, this thing's an old frickin' war horse. BMW M6, forget, I mean, they're racing the M8 in GTLM 
I mean, we're we're one model older in GTD. Again, I forget the year they got this thing. It just feels like it's been around forever. It is the bruisiest of bruisers. It is all kinds of crazy awesomeness, whether it's the tacos livery on it, whether it is the it's just sublime liquamali livery or just the traditional blue and yellow Turner colors. I love that Bill, uh, I love that his teammates as well have written, you know, Robbie Foley, I think has been a pretty strong revelation this year, but I just love seeing the fact that Bill's doing this in a car where you're like, man, you know, this is making me nostalgic for fricking old Areca FLM 09 LMPC cars. You know, if we're dragging out that kind of machinery, (laughs) you know, let's get all of them out. Where's, where's a a good old DP, you know, I mean, let's, let's get old good old Riley Mark, whatever out here and just, you know, truly go nuts with it. So that's the thing that I kind of giggle at and Rocky, by the way, as he did not do it this week for a week in IndyCar, but he did just walk across my keyboard, and he hasn't showed me his ass yet. I mentioned this on the IndyCar show. That's the thing he loves to do, is walk across and kind of stick his ass in my face, which is his way of saying, hey, idiot, feed me. Can we just make it very clear to new uh, listeners to the weekend sports car race uh, 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 podcast. We are talking about Marshall's cat and not Mike Rockefeller. No, be, incorrect. Would, no, Rocky. Would, no, got, no, Rocky's been here for about a week now. Yeah, uh, oh, I wow. tell you. I mean, I, I have a lot of German friends. This is a Germanic attribute. I did not expect. Yeah, the old uh, look wow. at my look at my culo. Like, yeah, I wasn't really expecting that <laughs> one. But uh, hey, you know. <laughs> <laughs> who knows maybe that's the reason he's been in the sport for so long you know he shows his ass to a lot of people they they submit and off we go it's it's a, it's a unique way in which his career is funded uh will uh, will chip Gavassi racing be partnering with another emsa team as mark cardella any possibilities we see them partner at the 2020 relics 24 hours with a full-time emsa team to continue their appearance streak in the event not that i know of what they've been working towards but no not that i know of speaking of things i do know of though should we mention that we have a bushu's hammer emporium t-shirt coming here sometime soon i believe you and i have both both agreed on which logo we should use. Should we tell folks about that? No, no, absolutely we should. Uh, I mean, uh, Christoph Bouchou has been a massive supporter of the show through his various... A massive tool, a massive tool and supporter, yes. Absolutely. And he has carried his massive tool um, up and down the paddocks uh, more than once in support of his uh, abilities on track. And yes, indeed, there will be some merchandise. You know what you need to do? You need to retell this story because this st- I've been asked by a number of people. Hey, you? you guys talk about Bushu. Is that like some sort of weird bamboo? <laughs> uh, what the well, Christoph- hell are you talking about? So maybe well, for those I who should. are still listening 45 minutes in or whatever, let's just retell it. And I'll make a little marker here so we can clip okay. this off and use it in the future to explain to generations who wondered what these two idiots were rambling on about. Well, Christophe Bouchou, known colloquially in uh, my kind of uh, neck of the woods of Christopher Bucket, um, a French racing driver of no little talent, uh, Le Mans winner back in the day. Um, but Also has, the most hated 
sports yes, car driver yes. of his no, generation. No, no, wait, wait, wait. We're coming to that. Um, has the most hilarious and absolutely unbroadcastable uh, nickname amongst other French drivers. Um, I, I literally cannot say it. It does feature literally the worst word in the world. Um, and uh, has indeed, as Marshall quite rightly says, got a reputation for some unpleasantness. The, the Bouchou's Hammer Emporium moniker that's come with him comes courtesy of a particular instance, which I must catch up with my friend and colleague, Marshall, sorry, Marshall, uh, Malcolm Cracknell, to, to, to absolutely establish Evening Rocky. I can hear that. Yeah. Um, uh, is uh, to where this actually happened. I think it was Monza, and I think it was either free practice or testing, when uh, Christoph, I seem to recall, was in a GT1 spec Lamborghini. Of course he was. Um, of course he was. And I think uh, the other party, one Bob Berridge, was in his LMP1 Lola, Something happened on track. There was clearly a disagreement, possibly contact on track, and a scene then ensued in the paddock, uh, which had Monsieur Bouchou coming up to see, um, to object to what had happened on track, uh, Mr. Berridge. And uh, in order to actually somewhat offset the somewhere close to a meter's difference in height between the two, uh, Christoph carried with him a rather large hammer uh, to uh, <laughs> to make this point. Allegedly, I should say. I wasn't there. Allegedly. Um, he was then invited to depart the scene of the confrontation repeatedly and loudly by Mr. Berridge, and indeed he then did so. So, Christophe Bouchou, how could put this vertically challenged angry Frenchman avec Hanner, um, did not deliver on indeed the threat to use said tool. Knowing that Bob Barrage would have grabbed him by his head, then grabbed yes. him by his feet and played yes. him like an accordion. I think that's probably a about right that's that that is one of the prettier kind of pictures that could have come from that scenario Bob not being Chris, a small man by any measure no 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 not, not small and not easily intimidated it's fair to say either um and so yes therein the legend was born and since then there have been further legends and at some point i think when we are dead and gone marshall books will indeed be written of the legend of bushu christopher bucket you are indeed legend and we are then, to our vast surprise, so thankful for the driver we talk the most shit about <laughs> to reach out and offer to sponsor specifically yep. the weekend sports cars with his, to our vast surprise once again, highly lucrative business in France, Bouchou's yep. Hammer Emporium. Got a problem you can't solve with your fists? Buy a Bushu hammer. I mean, right there. So as a just an ongoing appreciation tour of this immense sponsor, we're also, maybe we're bragging here a little bit, we're the only ones. He's only chosen us in the weekend sports cars to promote his business internationally. We're, we're definitely going to need to produce some T-shirts. 
so you, our beloved listener, can help spread the Bushu Hammers, Bushu's Hammer Emporium message globally. This will also go with the brand new shirts we've just gotten in for the exclusive sponsor of my week in IndyCar show, that being Joe Tonto's Quarter Retrieval Service. So for those of you who love the movie Driven, very fortunate that Joe, in retirement, started a quarter retrieval service, and due to its extreme success, sending a few dollars our way through entitlement sponsorship of the Week in IndyCar. So, I mean, I don't, I don't know what to do with all this uh, Bushu and Tonto money that's coming in. It, it, it's frankly, it's becoming burdensome to have to count it all. Well, particularly when it comes in quarters, um, yes. It's, that is slightly tricky. Um, well, we'll keep an eye out, and there will, of course, be bounty offered for the first person to be pictured with Christoph Bouchou wearing, indeed, a Memorial <laughs> T-shirt. I will pay big money for that picture, um, but uh, but we will see. Let's push on. Marshall Pruitt. Tom Bacon asks, will Penske use Joseph Newgarden for any of the Ems endurance races next season? No. Not that I know of. Not that I expect. Uh, if you look at the unique choiceification of who they have placed in the endurance roles, they have had Graham Goodwin. Graham Goodwin. Well, okay, we can reveal this now. Graham Rahal is not actually a, a race car driver. It's Graham Goodwin. Graham Rahal is he's an actor. He's from Central Casting. Uh, they have used Graham Goodwin a.k.a. Graham Rahal, and Alexander Rossi, and Simon Pagano, Rahal, a.k.a. Goodwin, a staunch member of the Honda family, therefore drafted into the Acura slash Honda, actually it's the Honda Performance Development funded uh, ARX05 program with Team Penske. So here we have a person in IndyCar who does his best to defeat Team Penske in their Chevy-powered IndyCars being brought in by Honda to represent uh, the brand in sporty cars. Also, Alexander Rossi, another Honda IndyCar person, drafted in to do that. Pagano has been the only non-linear Honda endurance driver, part of the Team Penske program, winner of the Indy 500 and an IndyCar championship using Chevrolet power at Team Penske. Would also say, though, that Simon, before coming to Team Penske, was... Just about the closest thing Honda had to a factory driver. Champion with the team, 2010 ALMS. So while he is a Penske person and does represent Chevy in IndyCar, I would say that Honda, knowing just his quality and how darn good he is, there is a little bit of uh, forgiving of what he might represent in open wheel, knowing that they're getting a pretty darn good guy who's already under the Penske tent for their IMSA endeavors. New Garden, I would say, does not fit anything there, simply because while he has wanted to branch out into sports cars, does not have any experience that I know of. I mean, I've tried to help him in the past to find opportunities before he went to Penske. None of those panned out. So I'd be very, very surprised if Joseph was brought into the Accurate Team Penske fold simply because I think Honda might veto that because he is such a, well, he's the now two-time IndyCar champion, now reigning, having just won his second title for Chevy. 
I think that might be something where he's not quite the exception they would grant as Pagano is. Okay, we'll push on with uh, another driver-based question. comes from Matt Nieder. Uh, says that the launch of the Corvette C8R has been all about Tommy Milner all the time. Tommy, of course, the only current Corvette driver who hails, or full-time driver who hails from USA, with the rumored addition of fellow American Jordan Taylor, and rumors there are more changes yet to come. He says he's going to speculate that heading for an all-American driver lineup behind the wheel of American Sports Car in 2020. If you were Doug Fian, what two American drivers would you put in the C8R alongside Milner and Taylor in 2020? Hashtag me personally, he says, Tommy Milner and Joey Hand in the four, Jordan Taylor and Colin Brown in the three would apparently kick so much Ace. Oh, ass. Apparently, that's a that's an American phrase. Yeah. Well, I would not want to see Olivier Gavin, I believe a, a, one of Bushu's countrymen. I would not want to see Monsieur Gavin uh, jettisoned from the Corvette program, so I might disagree with you there. Nor do I want to see Antonio Garcia lost from that uh, project as well. But I have heard. Matt, that they're, and I wrote and have mentioned for, I think, about five or six months now, might be five, that more than one change is likely. So I do believe the Jordan Taylor thing is a done deal. Can't say that with complete factuality, but I do believe that is where that's headed if it isn't already a signed deal. The other part, though, and could it be an All-American lineup, if it were... Would shuffling the deck and moving Tommy aside to be with Jordan and then having a Gavin Garcia lineup? I mean, that sounds like that could be pretty darn potent for sure. But I have heard that there could be another change. Uh, Now, I would say this is where the fuzz comes in a little bit. Is Jordan Taylor a done deal signed, sealed, and delivered as Stevie Wonder wonderfully sung (laughs) or could some of the other candidates i've heard of one of them being colin brown in particular be in with a shot there have not heard so much anything about hand um frankly i'm very surprised that ford's redundant gt drivers have not been uh at least from what i have heard graham just shot to the top of the list. We got to get these yeah. guys, as many of them as we can. Not saying we're going to let our drivers, all of our drivers go, but uh, why look elsewhere when you have these you know, huge thorns in our side? I would, you know, knowing that these guys have been driving mid-engine cars, knowing that they won so many races, yada, yada, yada. Before, before the Ford GT program, Dirk Mueller was already known as one of the world's great GT drivers, period. Joey Hand, just one of the great all-rounders. Put him in anything, the guy's going to the front. Richard Westbrook? Huh. (laughs) The guy's ridiculous. I mean, seriously, how do you hire anybody before you hire Westy? I mean, when I spoke with him at Monterey, Graham, it was depressing. Truly depressing. He said, I've got nothing. You know, I mean, I might have a little, I shouldn't say little, I might have an NAEC thing, which I've since been reminded it's now the Michelin Endurance Cup, but in my brain, the North American Endurance Cup has stuck. 
Could he have something for the long races? Maybe, but nothing full-time was coming forward. I hope things have developed since then. But, yeah, part of me wishes that the folks at Corvette, at GM Racing, Chevy Racing, would commission a third full-time entry because that sure would be a glorious thing to add some Ford talent to. Uh, Ryan Briscoe, another one with great experience in that program already, the Corvette side. Yeah, Um I love the idea, Matt. I don't know if we're talking about the possibility of a Colin Brown coming in to replace someone else, or if it's just they were looking at a number of Americans and Jordan Taylor is most likely the winning person among those to get a seat. Just one quick thing to close, though. I know that Doug Feehan is the program manager and is often the frontline spokesperson for what they do. I am not aware of a scenario where Doug picks the drivers. I would have to believe that those more on the corporate side uh, at the GM racing slash Chevy racing side would be the ones doing some pretty strong directing on who will be driving the new C8Rs. It's an interesting series of questions, isn't it? A lot still to be answered. We're going to rattle through a couple of short ones with IMSA. Uh, then we're going to push on. Uh, it will mean, I'm afraid, fair number. Loads of questions this week. They obviously realize you're going back, MP. Can you explain the situation with the number five car, says Josh Johnson? Uh, Mustang sampling apparently looking to try to stay in IMSA, but it looks like it won't be with Action Express and DPI. What do we know about their prospects what do we know about well the number five to be blunt looks done doesn't it yes and as we always try to do graham which is to tell as much as much as we can share as many things as we can also knowing that we do have some boundaries as jern o lists where we can't reveal everything i don't mind sharing some of this because we're now talking about past items Quite often when I would interview Scott Atherton during this new era of IMSA and if the topic of Action Express racing came up in whatever conversation, he would just by habit, and I I think it was just very telling of how the team was referred to internally within the halls of IMSA, referred to it as Jim's team, that being Jim France, co-founder of IMSA, the original IMSA, and the modern-day version, now the president of NASCAR, a company founded by his father, I believe. Scott, in those conversations, would, I shouldn't say conversations, interviews, refer to Action Express as Jim's team, would then get a call, not necessarily from Scott, but whomever was in charge of communications at the time, saying, hey, yeah, just just spoke with Scott and... uh, he said he might have might have said Jim's team uh, in your interview. Could you change that to Action Express, please? Sometimes uh, wouldn't be caught or thought of, and it would go into print and would then get the call. Hey, just read the story. Could you um, do us a quick favor and change that uh, and, and take Jim's name out of it? And that's because not as if it's a dirty secret, not as if, I don't know if there's anything wrong with it, but the guy who started IMSA in 1969 was the silent-ish owner, 
primarily, though, getting to the answer here, the financial backer of that program. And so not wanting to put too fine of a point on it, at least from the IMSA's president standpoint, Scott would ask whenever he had that slip of the tongue for that to be fixed. So it was just not revealed as directly. We have all known for quite some time that this has been Jim's team. This is something where, with the aforementioned financial issues, Graham, that we discussed regarding what John Doonan will be facing and taking over the presidency, with NASCAR's fortunes, financial fortunes coming down, big costs going out, yada, yada, everybody, especially the family, has been told, implored, do not spend anything you do not have to do. We're going to be under massive scrutiny just from everywhere. So as I understand it, this is the reason that Jim France, while I believe he's still the owner, primary silent owner, Bob Johnson is the, the, the official owner of the team. But where I understand things to fall here is there was the absolute necessity for Jim to stop spending money to support the team. And so with his money being the almost majority of what was being spent on the number five car, it left Mustang sampling, which has been positioned as the primary sponsor. Fairly confident that while you see a giant Mustang sampling on the side pods of the number five Cadillac DPI VR Graham, it's more a case of, hey, we don't actually have a, quote, big sponsor we need to promote of our own. There, since our budget is satisfied through private means, therefore, hey, we're going to give Mustang Sampling the deal of a lifetime. In reality, though, the size of the graphics on the car might not match the actual price being charged for the size of that. So if you re- if you take away France's funding, you have a team that, has maybe 20% of what it needs. I don't I mean I, I'm I'm guessing here but 20%, maybe 25%. It's a big void to fill. And so when I spoke with team manager Gary Nelson leading into the Monterey weekend and then I believe again during the Monterey weekend in asking about this very topic, hey, cuz we've been hearing for a while, been hearing over the summer, lots of I'll say the word rumors, but they weren't rumors. I mean, we knew what was coming. The five cars in some financial peril here. And for it to continue, it's going to need a an infusion. We just don't know how much. When I spoke with Gary on the record for a story about this, he did say, it, it's, it's a number. <laughs> it's a real number we've got to hit to keep this going. Not like, ah, eh, we find a little bit, we'll be good, but... You know, that's the part that I asked, like, okay, I know you're not going to tell me the amount, but can you help couch this a little bit? You know, is there a decent amount you need to find a lot? He basically came back and said, yeah, it, it's a real number we need to find. And the way he expressed that came across very clearly of, oh, that's, that's significant. And so if you look, Graham, of the, sponsors in DPI. You obviously have the Konica Minolta presence on the Wayne Taylor entry. That is a real sponsor. They spend real money to help put that car on track. There are a few other sponsors. 
that you would say spend money money what the number five car needed to continue i would say is far too much to be found in a short amount of time to get it back on track for january so all that leads to a case of could it come back if they find some money to do uh, the mec rounds the endurance rounds again anything is possible but this was the final race for Joao Barbosa there. I have, have heard from some pretty good sources that he is not only shopping that around. I mean, he and I spoke today. He, we, he wouldn't go into this part, but uh, I did in what I wrote say that I would not be surprised if we learned about him joining the JDC Miller team, for example, with Mustang sampling uh, coming along with him there. There's some other opportunities. Who knows where he could end up exactly, but... There could be something positive there in kind of a pro-am type deal, a co-driver that's bringing some money, a team that has a little bit of sponsorship, but it's certainly not enough for him to, quote, you know, have a primary entry of his own uh, with Mustang Sampling coming along for them to then choose who would be his co-driver. We saw that his number five co-driver, Felipe Albuquerque, was confirmed as the endurance driver in the sister number 31, Whelan, engineering sponsored Cadillac DPI VR. And so just to close here, what we've had happen, Graham is there are two cars in that stable, the wheel and entry, which was run independently and came in house a couple of years ago. That has been funded by Sonny Whelan, which is awesome and amazing. The other car, the number five, that's been Jim's car with Jim stepping back. No money for that to continue. Uh, or in Mustang's money not being enough to keep it going. Uh, what we have is the car being funded by Sonny Whelan and the team owned by Jim France. That is the lone full-time entry that will be reappearing in 2020. Yeah, sad and a shame for a car that's done so very well, but uh, good to hear that we might still see the talents of Charles Barbosa still around. Last quick couple in the IMSA world. Uh, Luke Filippodi asks, is there any possibility we'll see a Corvette C7R in private hands now the factory team is moving on? I have heard nothing about this, and it's because I haven't asked. And so I I can say I have no information of quality to offer, but hopefully you do. I, I have one little uh, nugget to actually offer, which is that there was certainly a prospective buyer for a C7R, not in North America, but that, um, that went very quiet middle of the year. Uh, whether or not that might be revived, uh, we'll wait and see. Whether or not that would be for, how can we put this, uh, international racing at a high level, or whether or not that's for something more clubby, Remains to be seen. There are teams that do have uh, um, you know, history of taking on uh, Corvettes into, not least, of course, Labra competition. V8 racing in, uh, in the Netherlands as well have had more than one X-Factory car. Uh, so there are, I think, prospects of seeing some of those cars race on. Whether or not we'll see one, for instance, in GTM, um, at the Le Mans 24 Hours, I think we're going to have to wait and see. But you know, they are very capable cars. And of course, there are now cars uh, available, at least three available, depending on which cars that uh, GM and Pratt Miller decide they might let go. Um, one more from him, so you think, before we move on? Yeah, we need to get to you. Folks are tired of hearing my voice. 
Right, okay. Uh, let's go for Ryan Terpestra one for IMSA Silly Season. Any sort of Silly Season update you're able to provide for IMSA. Your recent article made him feel a bit sad about the season of change that's now upon us. And I'm sure that's because, as you've referred to a little earlier in the show, uh, MP, so many really capable guys, we're no, not really sure what or indeed whether we're going to see them again. Uh, he says we need some additions, not just a season of subtractions. Hmm. <sighs> that, that, I think, um, sums it up, doesn't it? Here, let me throw this one out. And this is a rumor. And so I realize, again, uh, we try not to just feed you things that are, are not fully vetted. I have heard this from two people, though. And it's two people that I, I would rate as in the know. So it's not silly season in a traditional sense of like, hey, here's five new cars coming in and new teams left and right. It's just maybe a little bit of fun. Is this why that happened, which contributed to a silly season story? So we have Ryan Hardwick, sponsored by the nutrition company First Form, driving for Paul Miller Racing Team. Announced here just recently this week, I believe, the press release that came out from the Wright Motorsports team, their Porsche factory affiliated, that Ryan will be moving over to Porsche, leaving the Lamborghini Huracan GT3-based Paul Miller racing team, defending, or at least when he joined the team in 19, the uh, defending reigning GTD champions, Madison Snow, Brian Sellers, announced that he would be leaving the team, going to Wright Motorsports, driving a Porsche 911 GT3R. Ryan, who injured his knee, has been rehabbing it, missed uh, whatever the exact number, but basically the second half of the season, Corey Lewis stepped in. Uh, Corey Lewis, I tell you, talk about, for anyone who was unclear, that guy should be hired by many GTD teams, if not other teams. That guy's just stupid talented. Questions as to why, Ryan left the team. If you watch the video that was put together, you could take from it a little bit of aggro energy there, Graham. Um, it was pretty pointed about leaving about, not in words said, but just the, the phrasing of, of where Ryan would be going with, with first form. There is definitely some lack of happiness with, I don't know if you, if we would say the Paul Miller racing team, I don't think that was the case. I think they got along. Okay. I think it might've been more on the manufacturer front, Graham Lamborghini. And so the story I've been told is one that apparently the owner of first form as this story is shared, can't tell you whether it's hundred percent accurate, zero percent accurate, but as the story has been shared by a few people now, the head of first form car collector person who loves him some fine exotic machines wanting to place an order for just that a very rare brand new highly customized Lamborghini could not get the order filled don't know why again can't tell you if this is true or not just telling you just sharing this that there was some acrimony some non 
happiness involved in Ryan's sponsor in potential feelings and treatment by the manufacturer used to earn that 2018 GTD title with Paul Miller Racing that he was driving for and that things might have gotten ugly enough to where, based on the person, the, the company paying for his racing, a need to shift to a different team with a different manufacturer was absolutely called out as mandatory, all due to ordering of personal Lamborghini efforts blowing up and going sideways. So I don't know if that fits a silly season question exactly. I can't tell you if it's, it's partially true or all the way true. I do know that it would be a pretty interesting reason, though, Graham, for someone to leave a team based on their sponsor having a bit of a row with personal vehicle ordering from the manufacturer that their driver is racing in a professional sports car series. That's a failure to sign the Beatles level failure, isn't it? It's it'd be a fun one. Again, we'll hopefully find out more and, and pin that down and not write about it because it doesn't deserve a story. But you know, who doesn't love a good story? Spe- ah. Speaking of, it is officially transition time. I'm going to put da, a little da. marker here. Dun, dun, dun. It is time for me to axe. That's spelled A-X-E. It's time for me to ask Graham Goodwin questions from my favorite acronym, which has been turned into a word, WEC Aslam Elms ACO, WEC, Asian Le Mans Series, European Le Mans Series, and all things at La Sarth. Let's go with our man. He is our man. We love this guy. He is, it wouldn't be, Graham, an episode of the Week in Sports Cars Without a Question from Right Turn Lover, who asks, where did the Rebellions lose time? Now that right there, that's a great question on many planes. Motor racing as a watch brand as well, the losing time. Anyways, <laughs> for hashtag me personally, it felt like they dropped off more later in the stint in trickier conditions. Is the cap on success penalties too tight to get privateers in the hunt, or is it the first time for them to address their weaknesses, I believe, regarding the most recent round you attended? Uh, Yeah, indeed, at Fuji. Um, Right, let's try and take those points in uh, some form of order. That's always a good idea. Um, I think the first thing to say is this is the first time, as was the first time, that we've seen this success handicap system in place. Uh, For those that aren't aware of what we're talking about here, this is designed this year to address the absolute dominance of the Toyotas. And what it means is that the cars in LMP1 are assessed a series of penalties or series of measures designed to restrict their lap time based on where they finish in the overall order of the previous race and the race before that and the race before that. So what you're going to see progressively through the season is the more successful cars in the overall order 
being reeled in. What does that mean in reality? It means in reality that the race-winning Toyota from Silverstone was reeled in by what was deemed to be uh, you know, a number of measures to restrict their lap time by about 1.4 seconds. It means the second-placed Toyota was about a second, and it means the third-placed championship runner, which happened to be the fourth-placed car at Silverstone, the Ginetta, was about three-quarters of a second. Did it work? Well, in terms of lap time, you have to say, yes, it did. Um, had there not been uh, a bit of a problem for one of the Ginettas, uh, Mike Simpson in the, uh, the number six car put in a stellar lap time. Charlie Robertson in qualifying put in a great lap time too, or was putting in a great lap time too, that looked set to split the Toyotas at that point. Unfortunately, had a spin, he thinks, his uh, his error. But that, um, I'm afraid, was compounded by the fact that there was a loose electrical connection. The car had just had a super rapid engine change uh, from the crew. He couldn't restart the car, so the car started at the back of the grid. As for the question from our good friend, right turn lover, and good evening, um, the answer is we did see particularly the rebellion, although uh, the, uh, at, the, at turn one, the other, um, and this is, by the way, the, uh, the, uh, the heavier of the two Ginettas, very briefly, for a matter of meters, led the race. Um, but we did see the rebellion get stuck into one of the Toyotas uh, during the opening laps. I think the answer to the question is the principal thing uh, that we saw was that the uh, Toyotas were able to use their advantage in traffic still more, and they caught traffic remarkably rapidly. Uh, they were tricky conditions, transitional uh, conditions um, for uh, the cars, but they were able to use that um, that that kind of extra punch uh, out of the turns and through traffic better. But it was it did my heart good to see the real speed of those LMP1 non-hybrids and regularly through that race, uh, the Toyota's been passed on the straights by LMP1s and at times LMP2s as well. Here's the next bit, uh, Shanghai, both of those. Uh, Toyotas are going to be running with still more restrictions. There has probably never been a moment since the uh, the factory hybrids were introduced into the WEC where there's been a better opportunity for a non-hybrid car to properly compete, um, you know, head-to-head with those cars. So watch out for Shanghai. It could be interesting. It's only going to get tougher if they keep winning races. I'm going to go to our pal Stuart Hart. Says when discussing the 2021 WEC calendar, you omitted Fuji from the sure things list. Was this an oversight? Attendance seemed to have taken a dip, but it's a track with a lot of potential. Any thoughts on the following potential additions? Montreal, Yas Marina, Kyle and the Bend. Well, I mean, I would direct the Honourable Gentleman to uh, stories posted by my friend and colleague Stephen Kilby on both Racer.com and Daily Sports Car today, uh, which reveal the list that was offered to the teams. Um, uh, as not, not as a kind of a wish list, but just as a kind of an indicator as to where their mind was, not just to do with the current tracks, uh, but also to do with some potential new ones. And I can tell you Montreal and Yas Marina did not feature on that list. Kyle Army and the Bend 
did. And it's an interesting list. Um, as for Fuji, are the sure things? I hope it is still a sure th- thing. We love going to Fuji, but probably the reason why I didn't mention that as a sure thing is because also on that list is Suzuka. And that raises a very interesting question indeed. Why, in an era where Toyota are about to release a new top-end hypercar, is Suzuka on the list of possible WC uh, tracks? It could just be an indication as to an indicator to find out whether or not people want to change within uh, Japan. We've been going to uh, Fuji for every single year of the WEC. Or could it indicate something else? And the cleverer of you amongst uh, our listeners, and that is all of you, will recognize that it might just indicate that something might be there in the wings. Boo Shoes Hammer Emporium. Be sure to check out their brand new line <laughs> of nail pullers. All right, we're going to go to, you know, we're going to stick with Stuart Hart. Why? Him send good message. A further question about the 2021 season. Are genetic oh. cars planning to run grandfathered cars? Same for Rebellion Racing. Imagine they would both be bulletproof in terms of reliability. Janetta's LMP3 has hypercar styling cues. Is that a hint towards their LMP1 hypercar plans? Well, I mean, I can tell you what I know from where uh, Lawrence Tomlinson uh, is at the moment on it, and which is he absolutely intends that the Genesis will carry through for uh, next season in grandfathered form. We know that that's already part of the plans for the ACO, that uh, obviously the, that will mean the cars being reeled back in. But I think Stuart is right uh, in what he implies there, which is the really do I, do I suspect that a grandfathered LMP1 would be at uh, hypercar performance? Uh, limits? No, I think they'd be slightly below that because that's the way that generally they tend to grandfather cars. Do I think uh, that the LMP1s would be more reliable? The answer, I think, is the earliest part of the season, certainly. Yes, I think they would. So again, there's a real opportunity there uh, for the organizations that have invested in that machinery to continue to kind of cash in on that technological investment. It's going to be an interesting time for them. As for where they go from there on in, There's an interesting question. And for the answer to that question, I think you've got to look as well to that other question about the top class at Le Mans and in the WEC. What would you do? Let's talk Ginetta in the first instance. Uh, If there was the option to go hypercar, where they they are looking at a bit of a skunk works plan for Ginetta, you've seen the Akula uh, supercar. That, I'm sure, will not be the last thing we see at the top end of uh, Ginetta's engineering offerings. Um, Would you go down the road of a hypercar with some future products, or would you go down the road of cashing in on the chassis technology and look towards something like a DPI with some form of more GT-like bodywork if that was an option? I think the key, the questions, the answer to that question is going to be determined where Ginetta's business lies in the future. And what I'd say is, if you've already got the plan to commit to a grandfather car, you've given yourself a further year to think about it and see how things actually uh, emerge. 
As for rebellion, I think there are two questions there, Stuart, and you'll forgive me for answering the question you've not asked, which is there are two parties there. An increasingly important part of that party is Orica. Uh, what are Orica's plans? Orica are very active in trying to find a solution moving forward, not just for their DPI ambitions, but also for whether or not there might be an opportunity in hypercar. I would expect to hear... Uh, more from what Orica might determine are their options, at least privately, in the coming weeks and months. I don't think we can have very much longer to find out whether or not they've got something going on. Rebellion, I think it's very much a wait and see. It is firmly a reeled-in program from Rebellion this year, down to one car. I think they're hoping to have two cars for uh, Spa and Le Mans in exactly the same way as I know regular listeners will know that Ginetta are looking to have three cars uh, at Le Mans and possibly at Spa. Uh, So let's wait and see whether or not those plans come together. But it may well be that there's a very different answer to the question depending on whether or not it's the question is about Rebellion or about Orica. Let's move to James Fox. Says, do you think the FIA WEC would benefit from the light touch given by the officials for the contact scene at Petit Le Mans? Or were IMSA's officials too light in applying the rules for several instances where cars were hit by other cars? Um. My general impression of this, uh, not just from the IMSA WeatherTech Sports Car Championship, but also some some of the things I've seen in, for instance, the uh, Michelin Pilot Challenge, etc., is that I don't think that has done the rules, uh, sorry, the, the racing that many uh, that many favours in IMSA this season. It's not a contact sport. Uh, I think there's a big difference between whether or not you've actually got, uh, uh, you know, accidental contact or whether or not it's just overly aggressive. Uh, my view would be I have no problem with uh, drivers' cars being penalised for uh, contact that's actually had an impact on another competitor's race. Uh, I don't have a problem with that whatsoever. So a light touch on contact, no. A brush here and there, not a problem. But a brush here and there as um, – Pretty dramatically, uh, one competitor, in fact, two competitors found out in a championship deciding race at Monza last weekend can have pretty dramatic consequences. If you don't know what I'm talking about there, have a quick look at the story we wrote for uh, the GT Open Cup. That is the new for this year support series for the International GT Open, where the two championship contending cars uh, were, well... (sighs) how could I put this? We're battling for the lead on the final lap at Monza. Uh, the car challenging for the championship, looking to take the lead, did indeed overtake the Grand There was the lightest of touches. And what it ended up with was those cars that were then running first and second, finishing 11th and 12th on the final lap. One of them with one corner of the car in shreds in pit lane. The other one, fully alight in pit lane and winning the championship by dint of getting to pit lane quicker than the car that hits him, um, small things can have big consequences. And I think that's the job of race control. If you think there's faults, you should be punishing it. I'm going to go to Ryan Terpstra next. Graham says, Corvette keeps saying everywhere that Petit was the final race for the C7R. So the C8R at Le Mans is confirmed? Also says he's really happy for Reese and Bill Arberlin. 
Uh, the answer as well, would appear to be, judging from the ACO's press release, and quite surprised to me, I have to say, it looks like the answer is yes. I think it looks like we will be seeing the Corvette C8R at Le Mans this year. It, the, the press release, um, uh, the, or rather the story on the ACO's website, welcoming the um, uh, the debut uh, appearance of the C8R, basically said, we'll see you at Le Mans. Um, so you've got to believe that that is de facto confirmation that C8R will be seen on track, um, you know, at uh, at the start in June. Will we see a C7R anywhere, as we had said earlier in the program? I hope we do, because it's still a fantastic, you know, fantastic beast. And I think would be still very competitive in GTM, uh, which is a buoyant class still. Let's wait and see. Might be an opportunity. Might be an opportunity in whether or not that be Creventic, whether or not that be uh, the European Le Mans series. I think there's all sorts of opportunities for the for that car to find customers. Let's wait and see whether or not GM wants to sell them. Going to go to Chris Alfby. Any updates on the hypercars and how they will affect P2s next year? Yep, I think we've got a bit on that. So hypercars, uh, I've got a pretty large piece I will need to write at some point. Um, a long chat with the Toyota Kazoo Racing guys. They informed me that uh, testing is going pretty well all aspects of their package. The car we've seen so far, the pictures that have appeared on racer.com and on dailysportscar.com, are, of course, the road car version rather than the race car of the GR concept. Uh, Valkyrie, the Aston Martin side of things, with the predicted four-car effort at least between factory Aston Martin effort and the motorsport effort. I'm not sure we're going to see all four of those cars start the season. I think that's going to be pretty edgy. Um, clearly, the hope is you'll see at least one more each of those teams for the start of next season, but it does seem to me that things Valkyrie have not been as straightforward. Those race cars to be built by Multimatic, uh, but to be campaigned by at least two different teams. Every single time I speak to Jim Glickenhouse, the story is exactly the same. He says they are on track. Uh, there's a pretty lengthy story again when they release the renders, directly sourced from Jim, that talks about their build plan with their 007, uh, we believe, we believe Alfa Romeo uh, engined hypercar, uh, that that car, he hopes, is going to be ready for the start of the season two. We've heard nothing, and I mean nothing, uh, from Bicolis, although I have a single source that says there is an intention from Bicolis to run their hypercar and a grandfathered P1 car uh, side by side uh, at the start of next season. But that's, uh, I'll believe that one when I see it. Uh, that's where we are with the potential for uh, takers at the start of next season. Still stories around whether or not we might see something emerging from um, the uh, Orica factory with uh, some form of OEM backing. New, new stories today, in fact, in French media about the emerging possibilities that Peugeot might be showing an interest for future years. And yes, I'm as bored as you all are with hearing that Peugeot will do it, Peugeot won't, Peugeot will do it, Peugeot won't. Um, 
But beyond that, and I've forgotten the other side of it, how will it affect the P2s? P2s, we expect it will be confirmed that the principal way in which the performance of the P2s will be reeled in will be uh, through rev limits on the Gibson 4.2-litre V8 engines. Um, Not heard anything much more than that, and certainly no official confirmation um, of that. Uh, Neither have I heard whether or not we will still see uh, specific aero packages for the P2 cars at Le Mans, although it does seem to me that if you are looking to actually help those teams, uh, removing the the, uh, um, the necessity, really, in performance terms of them having to buy another set of bodywork for one race would um, certainly be a contribution towards that and would help you with the performance restriction. Uh, but this is about keeping the P2s away from the hypercars and this aim for something like a 3.30, race pace for the, for the hypercars and keeping the P2s below that. Uh, let's wait and see, and let's wait and see exactly what's confirmed as we move forward. We are waiting, and we are seeing. Let's go to Matt Hawkins, who says, with reports of the 2020 Le Mans start time going back to a traditional 4 p.m., what's your views on it, guys? Uh, as it's not uh, reports, it's confirmed. So it will go back to a 4 p.m. start time. I'm going to be honest with you, it doesn't make a blind bit of difference to me, is the honest answer. It just means a longer wait for the start of the race um, that next season. And it means that uh, the distance between me finishing up race reporting in the press room and getting to fall face down into some kind of, kind of pizza or burger at some point later in the evening is compressed slightly. But uh, at the end of an exhausting day uh, means it's going to be ending an hour later. That's honestly um, the traditional side of things. Not a problem as far as I'm concerned. If it's 4 p.m., it's 4 p.m., and we'll adjust accordingly. You covered off in the previous answer a good bit here, asked by our man Phil regarding the future of LMP2. So we'll skip that and go to Daniel Summersgill, who says, Last week, Mr. Goodwin, look at that, you become a mister. I get that, blimey. It used to be sucker, but now it's mister. <laughs> Last week, Mr. Goodwin mentioned that there has been no Garage 56 entries since Frederick Sose's adapted Morgan Nissan P2 entry in 2016. Is it likely that we will see the Mission H24 hydrogen car at Le Mans 2020, given its recent appearance in the Le Mans Cup at Spa? Are there any other potential entries for Garage 56 in the future? That might even beg one more. Do you think Graham Garage 56 will continue to be a thing? Uh, I think it's got potential, and I think the zero emissions side of it is definitely where that potential lies. So, Daniel, the, um, I can tell you a little bit more about the Mission H24 car. That will again feature in free practice sessions at Portimao for the final race of the Mission uh, Long Cup in a couple of weekends' time. Uh, we'll again see the deployment of Total's uh, transportable, containerized fueling station, fueling station, as it should be called. Um, do I think we'll see the, that car at the moment? No, because it hasn't remotely got the pace. The, the, um, the target performance level for that car is around GT3. Uh, so that's and it's some way off that yet. The car weighs about 1.4 tons. Each of the fuel, uh, the hydrogen tanks, are 50 kilos apiece. So 
the first thing is to actually nail down this fueling technology, filling technology. The second thing is to start to put and find more and more of the uh, of the performance that they believe they can get from that, and in addition to which, extend the range. I think a far more realistic potential target for that car is going to be some kind of appearance in the Road to Le Mans. Uh, support race they are talking at the moment about the car running and racing in the uh, michelin Le Mans cup next year as for whether or not we'll see another garage 56 car i think you have edged towards where the answer to that is most likely to come from we are talking at the moment about zero emissions cars or regulations coming in in 2024 for cars capable of winning the race do I believe that those cars will be capable of winning the race in 2024? That may be a bit early. Might that mean that we see uh, perhaps even an OEM hydrogen car coming in to demonstrate that technology a little earlier? Maybe in time for the centenary of the race in 2023, maybe the following year. I think there's every chance that that has got some potential. I think there are more. there is more than one major OEM that would love to make that happen. It comes down to, is the technology mature enough? Are the budgets for doing it available to those manufacturers? And are they available in time? But we, that the strides are beginning to be made. And I think it's time we started giving this hydrogen fuel cell technology a little bit more attention uh, as opposed to what we're getting at the moment with hybrid and battery. I've been in developing a methane fuel cell technology for many years of my life. Unfortunately, <laughs> it's yet to be perfected. Uh, have signed Taco Bell. That was the primary sponsor, so there's some definite positive news right there. All right, let's actually stay with our man, Danielle, who also asks... As it appears that Jan Magnussen will not be a regular driver for Corvette and Imsen 2020, I would add Daniel, I would not expect him to be an irregular driver as well. I know of no plans for him to be in that car or in that program going forward. He asks, how likely is it that we will see one more appearance from Jan in a Corvette at Le Mans in 2020? Hashtag me personally. He deserves one more outing given the disappointment of 2019's race. Uh, well, I think you've answered the question on Corvette. Uh, I think the answer on Jan is watch this space. There's clear, it's pretty clear there are conversations underway about a range of potential opportunities for Jan Magnussen. Um, his timing in terms of the likely, uh, uh, I think, uh, stepping back from that team is not at its best in terms of his potential uh, for full-time seats, simply because, as Marshall said repeatedly in this show, about other things. So many other talented guys are around. There are, though, I know you know MP, and I certainly know, other options potentially on the table for Jan, and I think we're going to see something emerge. I expect to see Jan Magnussen racing and racing hard somewhere in 2020. Should we go ahead and reveal a one-year continuation of the Ford GT effort? Led by well, Ian Magnuson, or should we keep that quiet? Keep that one quiet because, the, listen, we, we know that at the moment Bushu is talking about the potential lead sponsorship for that, and we don't want to risk our T-shirt deal with him. We're not recording this, are we? No, but, uh, but, but since we aren't recording this, it is fair for us to say, though, I know, Graham, you're good and I'm good with losing out on the millions of, 
of francs coming our way from Bushu if this does indeed see the effort for Ian the man to continue in a Ford at Le Mans. I think, yeah, I mean, I'd pay a bucket load of Danish krona for that. I'm going to go ahead. We're going to go back on the record here and start recording again. Okay, let's go to Damien Peachman. And I just said his name as if there's extra emphasis on it for no reason. But now you're you're up at at that level that you're finding it difficult to come back down again. I don't know why, (laughs) but you are accurate. And Rocky is complaining, wanting to be fed. So we will blame Damien Peachman. (laughs) Damien says, Graham, is there a good reason why the LMP2 champions in the ELMS do not use the number one on their car? Uh, No, there isn't. Is that enough of an answer? All right. Next up, we have Clemencito from the WC Reddit group. The, the answer is, before we come into that, is because the low numbers are reserved for the LMP3 cars. I'm I, I guessing that is because... So in the WEC, the low numbers are the LMP1 cars. There are no LMP1 cars in ELMS. There are LMP2 cars, both in ELMS and WEC, and there tends not to be much crossover, although there has been some crossover in terms of those numbers. You therefore get the LMP3 cars filling that void. Why? Because the LMP3 cars won't be racing at Le Mans 24 hours, and therefore you don't have that number clash. I love it. Mm. We're still going to Clemencito, though, so <laughs> just you're going to have to deal with that, pal. We're going to go there as we... Hey, we've got two to go in Weck Aslam Elms, Echo. Clemencito says, Hello, guys. Great show as always. Hopefully we have not changed your opinion uh, so far today. With Jim Glickenhaus and Aston Martin announcing they would run hypercars without a hybrid powertrain, is it reasonable to expect that Toyota will preserve an advantage over their non-hybrid competitors similar to the one that they have this season and last season? If so, will the new rules equalize the cars enough that we get equal competition? Sorry, <clears throat> that was, I was meant to be a cough. It, it came out as a laugh. All apologies there. Are we set for another season of Toyota domination? In other words, will the non-hybrids be truly competitive in the new rule cycle, or will it resemble the current situation? I don't know, Graham. Maybe we could use this new form of balancing they might have rolled out as that as a model for how excellent the balancing will be in the future. Well, you know what? I think what we see in the races to come in the WEC could be a quite important barometer for what comes next. What we're getting at the moment is not balanced performance. This is a success handicap system. And we've not yet really been given more than, uh, what was it, Sebring this year. You were in the same press conference I was when they talked about balanced performance. I... What do I expect? I would be surprised if there wasn't some aspect of both employed, uh, because let's face it, why make it less complicated? Um, so I think the, the reality at the moment is they intend to, to BOP these cars. I tend to agree that there are reasons to be concerned, that uh, it's not just the overall power of the cars and not just the aerodynamic efficiency of the cars, but the way in which that power is delivered. There are ways and means. If you, if you think about it this way, the moment the 
the hybridized Toyota has something around maybe just a little less than a thousand horsepower with the combined power delivery systems. The engine at about 500, around 500, maybe a little less for the hybrid systems combined. Uh, as opposed to something like 700 all the time from the non-hybrid cars. And that's the way you see that power delivered in different ways. The reality here, when you get to hypercar, is you're absolutely right that they will still deliver the power in different ways. But the reality is that the Toyota will have the same ultimate power output. Now, what that means is there will be a disparity between um, the uh, all-the-time power, if you like, from the Toyota against the, the um, non-hybrid hypercars. They won't have the power advantage when the hybrid kicks in. So it'll have a better power delivery, but it won't peak out at 250 horsepower more than the hypercar. So the, the bet, I guess, is that you should see better racing. Will it work out that way? I think we'll find out pretty quickly. Speaking of finding out pretty quickly, we just discussed this topic and three minutes ago landed in my inbox, and I'm sure yours as well. Something with a headline of Magnuson to explore future opportunities away from Corvette racing. So not that that is a surprise since I revealed that you revealed that and whatnot others did uh, last month, but just share this here. We love our man. Yan says, I'm fortunate to have had such a long career with Corvette racing. When I joined the program in 2004, I never thought this would be my home for the next 16 years. The team is like my second family. I'm very proud of the championships and race wins we achieved together against very tough competition. Thanks to everyone at Corvette Racing for the good times and memories. So should we add here, Graham, in the truth and accuracy and trying to share as much as we can while being good stewards of the sport that Jan's quote, exploration of those future opportunities away from Corvette racing, we would be safe in saying not of his choosing, correct? I think that's absolutely correct and absolutely fair, and that's a shame, but that is, I'm afraid, part of the kind of cut and thrust, the fact that this is a very tough part of a very tough sport. There's a lot of very hungry young drivers. There's a lot of OEMs that realize that, this racing is super, super close. It's, it's basically a dogfight from beginning to end. And people are young, looking to younger drivers um, to fly that flag. And, you know, Jan has had an extraordinary career with Corvette Racing, a very long career with Corvette Racing. I hope that finishes up uh, in an appropriate fashion in some regard. There is not one single person I know both of us included, that don't wish him well with whatever comes next. I absolutely hope and expect that we will see him racing again. He is absolutely a racer through and through, does all sorts of bonkers stuff uh, away from Corvette racing. And I think um, if there isn't a place for him in the Emerson WeatherTech Sports Car Championship, there will be a berth for him somewhere else. I expect to hear news soon. Final question for you exclusively and it's a heck of a question from Troavasaurus 
After plotting top lap times of the LMP2 class from Fuji, racing team in Nederland seemed really quick and consistently so. Only Monsieur Lapierre in the cool racing, an LMP2 god, could get within two tenths of what the RT and Areca could do with their respective best laps. When the track was wet, the gap increased, so much so that the gap between them and second in class was the same as the gap between first and last in LMP1. Were there any eyebrows raised in the paddock at the size of the gap to the rest of the class? There's also been relative parity at the top of P2 pace-wise, so what contributed to this? And there are about 14 other questions thrown in here too, but that's probably good enough. Uh, Trawava Source closes by saying, I'm a big fan of Racing Team Nederland, but I'm a little bit concerned over how they perform so well, especially considering the history of TDS. Right, okay. Moving away from that particular part, for, the, for starters, I will relay two of the assemble masses here, uh, both of you, uh, the thoughts of none other than Mark Patterson after the race, who was racing with uh, high-class racing in a not-dissimilar uh, Orica 07 Gibson with a pair of very skilled drivers and uh, produced an excellent performance for that team. What Mark's initial offer was, uh, it is great to see an LMP2 team in the WEC win a race with a real bronze drive report. So let's not forget for a moment the contribution of Fritz van Erd, who's clearly infinitely more comfortable with the Orica than he was pretty famously last year at Fuji with the Dallara. That said, Guido van der Gaard, um, has already shown how quick he can be in LMP2, even in what was not the easiest, uh, certainly not the best prepared uh, and engineered uh, Delara on this or any other grid last year. We saw a number of occasions where he was hitting the fronts and doing so in spectacular fashion. Uh, watch the opening laps, for instance, of the um, extraordinary race at Spa last year for that. That said, there was something of a coming out party um, the, uh, for the Fuji race, and that was Nick de Vries. Nick de Vries, absolutely untouchable. And I, uh, I think I said on air to, uh, to Alan McNish in the booth that what I asked, asked him the question, is there something about what happens to a driver's psyche when they win? Um, major races or major championships. Nick DeVries, of course, coming to that race, having just recently been crowned as the F2 champion, um, they support uh, category, of course, for Formula One, and having been named as a full-time Formula E driver. And Alan's answer, as always, was pretty erudite, that it's actually about confidence levels, etc., etc. It was a fiesta of excellence from Nick DeVries in that race. Nothing that anybody else could do about the pace in that car. Were the contributions made from uh, the engineering side of TDS? Yes. Was there a contribution made from the uh, the new uh, 2020 uh, Michelins? Yes. But I think if you're looking for the real answer as to what was going on there, I think you need to look at the pace of some of the other uh Really, truly talented drivers on that grid. Kenta Yamashita, for instance, at High Class Racing, who is the Toyota Junior driver. Uh, his pace was absolutely stellar. Very much a 
Fuji uh, expert, have a look at uh, to at Will Stevens, etc. Uh, but the reality there was their two professionals just did an absolutely sparkling job. And Fritz van Eer did enough in his uh, stints to make sure that the damage that was done to the overall efforts was not profound enough that his two professional colleagues couldn't claw it back. Uh, an excellent, excellent standout race from those two gentlemen. And another excellent example that if you want to spot a truly talented driver, have a look at something that you might otherwise criticize as being a spec class, because that's where talent stands out. And it certainly did uh, at the Fuji uh, race just a couple of weeks ago. Well, it's time for us to graduate from Weck Aslam Elms ACO. We are an hour and 45-ish hour, 50 minutes in. Might even be a little more than that. Who knows? You are the official chooser of categories. Where should we wander next? As we begin the slow wind down, we are sailing we are lifting at the end of the straights to make sure we comply with the fuel flow restrictions in LMP1 hybrid here on the Weekend Sports Cars. We've got three categories left. There is uh, a general, there is the fun, and there is a unique uh, for this podcast uh, section, which has been put together by uh, Ryan Kish. Thank you very much indeed, Ryan. And that is the Cats. questions. No, no, it's sent in by Cookie Monster FL because he sent loads of questions oh. in. Uh, we've already answered a number of those, but uh, I'll tell you what we're going to do. We're going to run through the ones we didn't. Um, he's, he's, he's asked about Colin Brown. We've talked about Colin Brown. Uh, he's asked about updates on LMP2 for IMSA. We can tell you a little bit about that. Uh, there are, I believe, still things in the offing that I don't know about yet that involve the potential for injection of Oricanus uh, into the IMSA LMP2 uh, grid. We'll wait and see what happens with that one. New LMP3s in IMSA Prototype Challenge will not be in 2020. It will be in 2021 for the IMSA Prototype Challenge. Uh, so there is going to be the opportunity for teams to sell their cars into uh, the IMSA um, uh, paddock next year. Success Palace we've talked about. Why was Team Little and Quick we have talked about? And here's one for you, MP. Um He's going to have to call out Road Atlanta, he says, for making spectator and fan creature com comforts hard to come by. He's heard the president wants some upgrades, but over the last five years, they've done zero work outside the competitive com uh, complex and fan zone pavements. Uh, look at the back, the uh, locking the backstretch walkover bridge through um, choked off anybody that was camping outside the, the infield from accessing the buildings conveniently, the hygiene buildings conveniently, with a lack of porta potties, didn't make it present. He'd address this how. You think that's fair? I wasn't there, so I don't know that uh, that's fair or not. Nor was I, unfortunately. I can only assume that concerns and or complaints like that should be absolutely registered. I would say in the fairly rare move on the weekend sports cars, brought to you by Cooper Tyerson's Justice Brothers and Bushu's Hammer Emporium, Yes. Send me those notes, and I will yes. forward them to the appropriate peoples. Uh, send me a direct message on the good old Marshall Pro Podcast Facebook page, and I will forward those. If you want me to keep your identity private, I will. 
I don't believe anybody at IMSA who could affect such changes is dumb enough to listen to our show, so I don't think we would have revealed anything here in uh, mentioning. Uh, there we go. Uh, kidding aside, send that my way, and I will forward that on to people who I can't actually guarantee will take a very significant interest in wanting to find out what went wrong, what poor decisions were made, what simple oversights might have happened, and don't know if I'm going to get answers back, but I can absolutely make sure that these concerns are presented to those who could look to do good or job next year. No problem. We're going to take a quick trot through Herr General, the general questions, again, some of which have already been answered. Uh, it's a quick point here, and it's a good point to make and a good time to make it from our good friend uh, in Switzerland, right turn lover, who... Uh, ask the question, but also makes a point that we've we've not heard a lot from you uh, lately on Weekend Sports Car, Marshall, and some positive steps forward, I hope, for you and yours. New home, uh, new reality, and it is very, very good to have you back after not an extended, but a kind of sporadic uh, time away from the microphone. My friend and your good lady, it's good that things are beginning to turn a corner. Yeah, thank you. Uh, We are in the most positive place we have been since May, and so that is awesome. Share a little bit of very quick background here, just maybe some context if there are those who are wondering why episodes that used to appear in a pretty narrow band each week that you could count on that's changed in recent weeks since we've moved. Uh, My wife coming home from the hospital... Uh, where she was under 24-hour care, well, that care has transferred to me 24 hours a day. And not a bad thing at all. Uh, it's an honor to be able to you know, be my lady's caretaker while we're going through these medical challenges. Just means that imagine all the things that you do for yourself on a daily basis. And I do mean everything. And then imagine needing help doing that or the inability to do those things yourself. M- many of them. Uh, the vast majority, whether it's meal preparation to laundry to having to relieve oneself to just all manner of things that we take for granted as normal. I have a thought, then I do it. Um, No longer being able to do those things for yourself, at least what we hope is a temporary situation, something that might come to an end, end of the year, early next year, not exactly sure. It just means that, no, no excuses, just sharing. The ability to sit at my desk (laughs) and just knock out content whenever I want, knock out podcasts whenever I want, get those things posted on some sort of regular capacity or regular intervals, that's all become subject to the greater need of looking after my lady. Last item here is, We do not have fixed schedules for the appointments that we go to. So we have weekly uh, chemotherapy. Uh, Yesterday, for example, ended up being almost six hours of chemotherapy. You bolt in, Graham, the time it takes to get prepared, get uh, up and ready and fed and out the door, travel out of the car uh, into the facility. Then you do the inverse on the way out, uh, head home. You know, it's a seven to eight hour block of time. Uh, and that day, 
changes each week. Uh, it's very rarely same day, same time. So could be very early morning one day, and you're hey, you're done. You're home by two. Yesterday we started at eleven fifteen, and didn't get home until late. Uh, we also have two to three physical, fairly intense physical rehab sessions per week. Uh, the drive there is about thirty minutes each way. Plus, you know, it takes a considerable amount of time to get in and out of the house to do that, in and out of the car, in and out of the facility. Then there's the hour to two hours of that uh, physical rehab per session. So, you know, again, whatever the whatever the amount of time is for the thing that we're going to do, uh, you can definitely add in another hour to maybe two hours, whether transit or just getting up and ready and out and back. So just means that there's some pretty big blocks of time where you go, all right, uh, we're just going to have to work around that. Usually the mornings, that's my high production time. Uh, I've been getting up early while she's been asleep to try and get ahead of the curve a bit. But normally, you know, 7 a.m. till about 12 each day, that's when I do the majority of my work. And, you know, this coming Monday, I think we're out the door at 8 a.m., and might be back by two. So, you know, just a case where, and then we have all the other things coming. So it's just a case where, again, not complaining, just sharing here. Um, having a weekly routine that is very busy at home, where you're constantly moving and constantly getting up and doing things, uh, and not able to just lock into work as I normally have. And then knowing that we have three to four maybe sometimes five appointments during the week. And those rarely, if ever, are packed into the same day. So it's three, four, five movements in and out of the house, you know, twice, leaving and coming back, driving wherever, doing the thing that takes whatever amount of time. Just means that here we are, Friday at 3-something p.m. California, uh, 11 something PM UK <laughs> winding down on the weekend sports cars. When in theory, this sucker should have been up uh, Tuesday afternoon, Wednesday morning. So thank you for the very kind note there. Miss your right turn lover. And yeah, things are way, way better. Just, I wish I could say that uh, things improving on maybe the health front or the just overall scenario front also coincided with a restoration of normal routine and schedule. So those two items are divergent are probably going to be that way for a while. And last note, which we just don't know, this is all based on the pace of recovery. I don't know if I'm going to the Rolex 24 Graham. I don't know if I'm going to the roar. I don't know if I'm going to Sebring. I don't know these things yet because coming back to the part where I'm the 24 hour caregiver, I have to be able to go somewhere knowing that my wife can care for herself. So very, very much hoping that we get to that place for her uh, by the end of the year. But if we don't, um, unfortunately, I'm going to be relying on you for lots of what the heck is happening, who said what, uh, can you believe it, whatever type deals. Um, who knows? Um, I might be living vicariously through you. I might, I'm, you might be my spirit reporter, not my spirit animal, but my <laughs> spirit reporter. Cause who knows? Uh, I haven't been much of one lately. Well, let's, let's, I, I'm going to do something I don't often do, 
which is I'm going to answer to that on behalf of, I'm sure, all of our listeners, which is much love to both of you. This is, it's, I, I can't imagine. And I, I, I want to address this directly to your lady before I address it to you. I can't imagine. Um, and I will tell you right now, there's a tear or two in my eye just listening to this. Good people. And you're not the only guys in this situation, but you are guys in this situation. And I'm sending much love across the water on this one. And I know the listeners have been living this with both of you. And I know they would want to send across the biggest hug we possibly can to the pair of you um, for what's been a very trying time. Thank you for sharing. You don't have to. Thank you for sharing. Um, you know, this is a huge impact on any family. And keep pushing. Kick its ass. Kick its ass. I'm taking your instructions and I'm feeling the, the warm and glowing hug. I'm also getting I'm also getting the side eye from Rocky, who's pissed he should have been fed about a half hour ago. So where else shall we wander here, my friend? As we uh, let's go, let's go kick on through quick uh, kick on through uh, general. There's not that many. Uh, uh, one from Mark Usher, the elusive goose on Twitter. Hmm. Giving uh, there's how many te- so many teams international sports car racing are based in the UK. How are they prepared for Brexit? <laughs> Let me answer that one. I have no idea. Um, uh, we're I believe Boris Johnson has been hired to uh, yeah. solve that out for uh, the UK motorsport industry. Am I am I close on that one? Did I get that right? Uh, yeah, I've heard they're all going to club together and go and literally use those clubs that they've done together uh, and take them down to uh, Downing Street and do what they will there. Uh, once we know what the hell's going on, I think we might have a better idea. I will say this. Um, the worrying part about this utter debacle is the number of people involved in international motorsports on the organizational front who are beginning to talk about having to have a plan B about whether or not they race in the UK. And that's because of concerns about the logistics of transporting cars and materiel into and out of the UK, in the immediate aftermath of whatever deal, no deal. It's like a game show. Um, whatever comes from this absolute disgraceful mess uh so the answer is i'm sure they're thinking about it as much as they possibly can i have spoken to at least one team that is talking about having a plan b which involves an engineering base a sub base if you like on mainland europe uh the fact that we're even having to talk about those things just makes me i'll be blunt really bloody angry um so Get it sorted. For the love of God, get it sorted. Let's have some clarity to people who are actually doing nothing other than live a life and earn a living. And let's move on through whether or not we go, whether or not we stay. Um, You know, those that have made these mistakes for good, for bad, for indifferent, I hope they pay the bloody price because this has been a ludicrous indictment on our political system in the UK. Uh, I'm I'm disgusted with our political class. Disgusted with them. I think I might have an answer here, knowing that our fine president somewhat <laughs> recently expressed his interest in what was it buying Greenland? I believe maybe yeah. maybe he could buy all of the motor racing circuits and mm-hmm. the Station factories. Top. 
in the UK, have them lumped in somehow as part of a sovereign nation, uh, Trumpistan, maybe, uh, maybe uh, that, I believe it that's somewhere close to Dagestan, um, where they, where I believe you don't even have to pay to get put into oh. underground kind of, uh, uh, concentration areas and get screamed and yelled at for hours. Yeah, it's wow. I, I'm, I look, I'm a lateral thinker. I'm an American. I'm just chock full of, I piss excellence in the morning. So I don't know. I might, I might have just solved. Why didn't you guys ask me sooner? Problem solved right here. I think that's the way to do it, mate. I think that's the way to do it. Uh, let's have a quick look. James Counter on Facebook. What do you think about renaming corners? He understands what he's one of more recent drivers, but for example, he wouldn't want Dingle Dell being named Button as much as he likes him. <laughs> Dingle Button. Now I'm I am signing up for Dingle Button. <laughs> <laughs> Although the, the, I'm not sure, you know, I'm sure there's some uh, parental advisory boards that would, uh, you know, definitely protest. Uh, boy, I tell you. Uh, I, yep, I, I'd heard that the uh, team principal at Red Bull was going to be so honored and we're going to have Horner Corner. Oh, see, I love it. You know, look, I went around back, uh, paid that fine person $20 and I got my uh, my dingle button. So, yeah, <laughs> we... Uh, <laughs> We might have another hashtag we need to put on the shirt of uh, stupid uh, podcast sayings here. Uh, Dingle button, I don't know, horner corner. We got we got some options. Let's wait and see. Uh, let's, all right. Let's finish up. Let's finish up with, oh, we've got a bit of fuel cell technology stuff. We've already had a bit of a go uh, yeah. at that one. Um, let's move through a couple here. Let's, let's have go some fun. Let's have some fun. You want to uh, kick off with a Yeah, couple? yeah. Let me throw some fun at you here. I'm going to throw fun at you, damn it. This comes <laughs> from our man, Adam Farrell. In the far and distant future, when the time inevitably comes for you both to hang up your keyboards and microphones, do you think you'd still have the desire to attend motor races and enjoy them as fans? If so, which races or tracks would be on your list? It's a really, really, really good question. Thank you, Adam. Yeah, I think the answer from my perspective is not many. Um, I've been to most of, not all of the tracks that I'd like to go to. We've talked about the lack of Road America in my past, but uh, I think there are one or two maybe that I might like to try for the first time. Generally speaking for me, it tends to be the people in the cars. And therefore, my guess is that I would become something of an aficionado of historic racing, mainly because uh, historic racing by that stage would be the kind of racing that I was covering professionally when I was in it. It falls along this this same um, train of thought that I've got about care homes. Have, we, have I bored you about this no. before? Right. So uh, my mother, bless her, is indeed in a care home now and is happier there and safer there than she was in our family home for quite some time, uh, as I'm afraid the ravages of old age actually took hold. Uh, but the thought occurs when I go and visit mum there and the kind of prevailing entertainment tends to be kind of music from the 30s and 40s you know it's that kind of glenn millery type stuff um which is from a very early youth by the time you and i are getting to that stage i could just there's, there's this thing that's about well come on mr goodwin 
you know, it's anarchy in the UK. It's coming sometime, but wow. maybe. You know, it's going to be that, isn't it? That's going to be the prevailing entertainment for old age pensioners, not that much further into the future. And it's a bit like that with motorsport. At some point, I'm going to be going to a track and there's going to be somebody, some very rich guy who or girl, who's going to have uh, put together the budget to be running one of these extraordinary LMP1 hybrids and kicking the ass of some, you know, I don't know, wooden tyres shod, uh, Orica 03. I, I do like historic racing. I love seeing the cars. I love seeing some of the old faces that still run those old cars. And uh, there's a part of it that doesn't like myself for liking them, but I do like the likes of the Goodwood uh, Festival, the Goodwood Revival. Um, you you do see some spectacular sights there, and God bless those people that uh, choose to spend their hard-earned money on buying those cars, restoring those cars, and racing those cars, and putting some of the old uh, heroes back into them. I suspect I might become a bit of an old bore uh, in my uh, in my dotage. I don't intend to stop writing for some little time yet. I found the storytelling part being the thing that I probably enjoy most it just revelation wise about this newish career i chose that's a thing that i see as while i'm not saying what i do is art i see it as an artistic venture and so that artistic expression is something i enjoy so i like you graham while folks i am positive will stop paying me to do this at some point in time I would foresee just enjoying <laughs> continuing to write in general, just for myself. So not sure when I will retire. I, I don't foresee a time where I would retire because this is actually a lifelong passion, just the sport. So stepping away from it uh, and returning to it every now and then, that maybe will happen, but it doesn't feel like that would. But I do, to Adam's point, I do desire to go to some club races and just enjoy them see what's happening it's been a long time since i've been to one don't know if i would enjoy going to professional races once you know the inner workings once you've been a part of the inner workings and i'm fortunate to have done just about every role i think it'd be hard to just sit in a grandstand and not grow massively bored because I'm not just there from purely the fan experience side. I think that part might be broken for me a bit, which makes me sad, but I do have a desire to go and do work like things in quote retirement. One thing that I have, I was thinking about this a couple days ago, frankly, while I'm thinking of things that I own that I might not need and can sell is I have, I don't know, man, $30,000 worth of uh, camera gear that I've amassed over the years. And while I bring that gear to most races, the last couple, I don't know if I used anything more than a really basic DSLR body and a relatively short lens just to shoot a little bit on pit lane. Actually going trackside, with a big lens and a motto pod and trying to make some nice imagery 
I haven't done that in a while. And I've found that actually, as I do more video stuff at the track, Graham, uh, often self shot and produced, but as I do more and more video, and then the other half of that is the writing portion, the going out and shooting, it's just become a, a small portion of what I do. And so that is another enduring passion. So I would love to go to some great races that I've gone to for many years, but probably the ones that I haven't, you know, I've been to not enough formula one races. I want to go to lots, uh, plenty of other destinations that I haven't been just to go and shoot. And I don't know if there will ever be a full photo access vest for the old guy who used to do this (laughs) somewhat moderately decently. And, but we're going to, let you go do this, even though you probably have no outlet and suck. Um, I don't know if I'd gain access to do any of that, but that is something that I can think of honestly, where, don't, Hey, does, oh, does it stop most of them, mate? Well, <laughs> fair enough. Um, maybe I do need to register the, the fake site I refer to for most of the folks we see like that, which is usually some form of sports cars or effing cool.net. Um, so maybe I need to register that and just, <laughs> Pimp that as my own outlet, um, which is hosted on GeoCities or something like that, or the uh, uh, the the website is optimized for Netscape and Netscape only. I don't know, but the going and shooting stuff, I think I would enjoy. And just last thing that comes to mind on this is I have a friend Terry Griffin. Some of you might have heard the podcast that we did uh, earlier this year on the 25th anniversary of Ayrton Senna's death. Uh, Terry was a Super long time American guy, actually here from the Bay Area, but uh, one of I mean almost no American Formula One photographers, and traveled the Grand Prix Trail for many years with Paul Henri Cahier. And although he owns an aftermarket tuning and repair and installation shop in Berkeley, California, and does not work for any outlets, he's still credentialed at some of the events that he wants to go to because. He's just known for being Terry frickin' Griffin. And frankly, he should always be credentialed. For those who are in the know of what he has done and contributed to that wing of our industry, there should always be some sort of emeritus credentials made available for him because he's a frickin' legend, at least to me. So while I don't know if that will hold in the future if Graham Goodwood wants a credential forever or me or others... I'm definitely glad to see that at least in Terry's case, when he rings up and asks for those credentials at Coda for the F1 race or Long Beach for IndyCar or whatever, it's pretty much no hassle, nor should there be. I tend to agree. And, um, you know, I think they they also, by the way, those guys tend to be the ones that don't abuse the privilege of those credentials. They go and do what they're going to do and they don't get in the way and they don't use the facilities in a, how can we put this, selfish way. Uh, Moving on. Can I I grab two and call them the clothes? Because I actually, if I don't do this, I am going to be eaten by my cats. Um, Rocky is kill you and eat you yes. well and rosie has given me the side eye as well uh she's the little yeah. assassin around here let's go for two and they are truly fun from james counter thank you james you, you we always rely on you i was gonna say <laughs> can count on you but i i didn't you know sorry it's a little too on the nose we can always rely on you for some good stuff 
two questions here. First one, Graham, what's the worst whoopsie you've had in a press car? Uh, sorry, I think everybody knows the answer to this one from me. It was um, fairly recently. I think it's the only whoopsie I've... Oh, no, I've, I've just remembered. I've had a second uh. <laughs> whoopsie in a press car. Uh, yes, I did reverse uh, an Audi Q7 into a concrete post. This was just after having had dinner with Audi UK's uh, wonderful David Ingram and then reversed his, uh, his uh, one of his press fleets into a concrete post. Didn't write it up, did dent it. Now, what I want uh, to know is yes. how... Did someone so swiftly from the time you got in the car in engaged reverse install a cement post? Because clearly that, you would not have done that had you uh, known it was there. It, it was outrageous. It jumps out in, uh, behind me, I'm afraid. The other one, as famously, and thank you very much, Johnny Palmer, um, for making sure this got a wider uh, audience, was uh, Johnny and I uh, aboard a KTM Crossbow. And we'd actually been up in the mountains in Austria uh, shooting all day with that car, with a photo chase vehicle ahead of us, coming down the mountain, uh, not very quickly at all, uh, down for coffee before we headed off to the Red Bull Ring. And I still, to this day, don't know how I did it. I came around a kind of sweeping right-hand turn, not very quickly, clipped a curb with the front right uh, wheel of the car. With the front nose. With the front nose, uh, which uh, basically lifted the car on that side and dropped it onto the rear wheel, punching a hole straight through the tyre and the wheel. Um, KTM, I have to tell you, were just amazing. Um, They they were incredibly understanding for it, massively embarrassing. Uh, Car was stunning, by the way. Uh, Absolutely (laughs) amazing. It was stunning. It was stunning right up to that moment. Um, But, uh, yeah, it was just one of those things. No clue. I have no clue how that incident happened. Uh, was not pushing, was not driving like an ass. Um, you know, I have driven like an ass before, and I know exactly what it means like to drive like drive like an ass, and it wasn't that. So again, the curb jumped out in front of me. How about yourself? We might have just picked up the new sponsor in Goodwin's Mallet Emporium, based on uh, the bad driving behavior <laughs> comment there. Uh, it would have been Le Mans. I don't know exactly what year, 14, 2014, maybe. 2015, uh, my last, I think, eight appearances at Le Mans were all courtesy of a content trade with Audi and Audi Sport. And so they often provided me with really nice vehicles to drive during my time in Le Mans. On this time, or this outing, they decided to give me something very nice, being a Audi TT... I forget what grade of sport S R something. It, it was, it had stupid horsepower. It was phenomenal. It was yeah. 400 plus horsepower front wheel drive turbo madness. I didn't know that's what I'd be getting. And I say that because as someone who tends to travel with a lot of crap with video gear and photo gear and tripods and computers and, audio recorders and whatever. Yeah. Maybe the most impressive thing I did that entire trip was wedge all of my belongings into an Audi TT. Unfortunately, there was one other wedging experience 
and that was attempting to refuel the beautiful car at the Carrefour just down the road uh, from Circuit de la Sarthe, knowing that it is already a very low-slung vehicle and knowing that my American heft further reduced the ride height on the on a very low vehicle. I remember maybe it was a tight entry into the uh, refueling pump. I don't f- remember is, the exact it setup. Is, the okay. Yeah. I can tell you that I believe the refueling apparatus is on the right rear of the car. So I pulled in and the little island of which the refueling pumps happen to live upon, they jut out a fair amount and it was the perfect amount to smash and mostly rip the rocker panel off of the right side of this glorious red Audi TTRS. Um, and I only, I knew about it instantly because while just idling very slowly at two or three miles an hour to just pull around the little curbing there to stop and refuel, the Audi went from making lovely hushed turbo noises to and that was the sound of whatever the bodywork was made of past tense and i believe the uh, metal underpinnings um shaping uh scraping and shaving along uh it, it just think of a submarine uh, maybe getting too close to an iceberg. It, it, some sounds along that register. And so. Not nice sounds. No. And not cheap sounds. And so, yes. Uh, I believe what I did was just say, F it. Filled the thing up. Backed out because I'd wedged the thing in and then pulled away and then stopped and got out and took a look and noticed that, huh, I need to go into the care for and get some duct tape. <laughs> because as it is uh the only other option since it's like 75 percent ripped off is to tear off the front portion of the rocker and stick it out of the passenger window looking like the world's weirdest uh set of skis and drive around town with the bodywork i've ripped off so instead i went and i think i found some duct tape and duct taped it in place and i drove my little hoopty loner audi uh, for the rest of the event. And the conclusion of the story is it was a really nice system they had set up where upon arrival, someone from Audi France uh, would meet me um, at arrivals. They would have a car downstairs. We'd go downstairs. I'd sign the little paperwork, hand over the key, and load my goods in, and off I go. would usually take them upstairs and drop them off where they would have uh, one of their colleagues pick them up. There you go. The return system was actually sans people and so i would just simply park lock the keys in it and then send a note saying it's in uh downstairs parking wherever wherever and they'd come grab it so i don't believe i got a phone call or an email afterwards saying yeah we found most of the car uh what'd you do with the rest jackass uh i think they just wrote that part off because i kind of wrote it off for them and i don't know what are you gonna do uh so that was my little story there let's go to james once more to close who asks similar theme what's the worst accommodation you stayed in on a business trip i will open that so that you can close my friend uh this would have been 2008 24 hours of Le Mans. 
where I was a guest of Aston Martin. Loved the trip. It was amazing. Again, another kind of work trade thing. Couldn't afford to travel there. They covered the travel for my client. We returned some content. Um, so all that worked out great. Great, great, great. Heading to Le Mans from uh, having spent some time in the UK with them. They did their best to make me feel so welcome and loved, Graham. There, I don't remember the name of the town or the chateau or anything, but it was about a half hour south of the circuit. A beautiful French countryside. Finally found the place, pulled up, saw this gorgeous mansion. My eyes just starry-eyed. Wow, oh my, I mean, come on. I don't deserve this. Well, turns out I didn't. That was for all the that was for all the finest people, Mr. King and everybody else, all the uh, the senior brass at Aston Martin were staying in what we would call in America the big house. What they had set aside for me again, greatly appreciated the is the gesture. Um, I had to change it up though. I would say that back when this farmish type setting with the big mansion was built in the 1800s or whenever the quarters i was staying in you could probably say either the help lived there or possibly some animals i'm not exactly sure um (laughs) you've gone super robotic by the way uh on the phone again here you might unplug and replug your uh your headset um i remember being redirected to the oh yes isn't this chateau gorgeous now let us show you where you're staying and being redirected to the you know the only thing missing were some pigs and horses and so while everything about the property was gorgeous this was just former stables or something they'd repurposed to throw a uh, an extra bed into and where I would not have minded, because I've stayed in far more humble accommodations, this is out kind of sort of farm nature area, not something that is super domesticated. And there were huge gaps on everything, the door and the bottom and the windows. And I just remember climbing into bed and just feeling like I wasn't alone. And you know that you kind of feel a little something on your leg. You're like, oh, it's just, you know, my nerve or something or your arm. Finally said the heck with it. I'm exhausted. The time difference is getting me here, but I got to turn on the light. Turn on the light. And it looked like my private insect collection had come and, and just filled the room. Walls are covered in everything that crawl. The bed wasn't overloaded, but there were plenty. I looked down on the floor. Every little thing that could crawl had come in. Had come in. Um, believe it or not, I have this weird thing where being in a room filled with insects by myself, I struggled to sleep that night. I know it's crazy. So, although uh, I called Sarah, who was the head of uh, Aston Martin Racing PR at the time, uh, the next morning and said, "Sarah, Sarah DeRose, she was awesome." Said Sarah, fantastic. Yes, Sarah, you are the sweetest human being on the planet. I know exactly what you're trying to do here and just make this beautiful experience for me. Could we find some really crappy hostel? Or I don't, I mean, truly, give me a 19 euro per night, whatever it is, type place to go, and I will go there. 
And so we ended up finding me some little cheap something or other that was actually 100 times nicer and probably cost 100 times less. So wow. that was the surprise. Big eyes. No, that's not for you, dummy. Go over here. Hey, um, yeah, let's actually dumb it down even more. And then we found perfection. Well, I'm going to give you three to finish. Oh, okay? Jesus. I know three. In fact, three becomes four. Uh, Florida, just generally. Um, <laughs> um, I think the best experience for Florida was uh, was Stephen Kilby, actually. Daytona, the Raw last year, where he stayed in. Actually, not in an expensive uh, hotel at Daytona. Uh, rang me saying... Um, I've just walked into the room. It is literally infested with roaches. Yes. Said, well, fine. Go back. Go back. Tell them that's not acceptable. Fine. Rang me again 20 minutes later. I've got into the second room. It's still infested with roaches, and it looks like someone's died on the carpet fairly recently. So kind of fresh blood there. So that one was fairly recent. <sighs> Our best one, I think, um, was a place called – I think it's called Petula, fairly close to Sebring. Uh, and a motel that if it wasn't where Psycho was actually filmed, uh, it seemed to be some kind of theme uh, um, uh, hotel based on that. I, I, I'd made the mass, massive mistake of opening the fridge once. Never, ever again. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what was in there. I don't know when it was in there. But it was absolutely appalling. We then move on to Spa. And a particular hotel that uh, we used to frequent on the basis that it was massively cheap. And there was a game played there by the entire DSC collective. And it uh, always featured on a Friday night once we'd finished with whatever late practice was going on and we'd eat whatever pizza we were going to eat. And we'd go back there and we'd sit up on the tables outside with a beer and we would play a game called Hooker or Honey. And that game was, as the young men came back to their rooms, was that the girlfriend or was it the escort? Yes, it was that kind of place. And um, some of the noises, you talked about the animals that used to be uh, in perhaps that stable. Uh, I think we had some of them by the sound of it. Some of the tortured sounds that were coming out from some of those rooms, I think they were still there. But the best one wasn't a motorsport one. The best slash worst wasn't a motorsport one. It came from my uh, my prior career in corporate PR. I happened to be working at the time for the alcoholic drinks industry. I was speaking at a conference in the fabulous English seaside town of Blackpool, and my then PA booked me into very fine-looking Victorian uh, oldie-worldy hotel quite close to the seafront. Uh, initially walked into the room as you recently redecorated, which smelt so strongly of paint fumes, I think I'm still high, uh, rang down to say, could you possibly uh, give me a room with a TV? There's no TV in the room. Well, there is a room, uh, a TV in the room, sir. The TV had been stolen. So they moved me to another room, which happened to be above the disco, uh, which until 2 o'clock that morning... Uh, I think the kind of bounce in the floorboards, you could measure between the three to four inch uh, rise and fall. Got up the following morning, went to shower uh, ahead of going off for my speaking engagement, 
came out. The entire room is absolutely full of steam. So I went to open the sash window in the room, and the entire window, including the frame, came off in my hands. I was literally standing. There's a floor-to-ceiling window. It's all than I am. There's about a six-foot window, and there was a six-foot hole in the wall of the hotel as I'm holding this window. By the way, still in my towel. Um, I left the hotel having just lent this window up against this hole in the wall, having gone back into the bathroom to change. Astonishing stuff. Was back in Blackpool fairly recently, and astonishingly enough, the place has been demolished. There's a surprise. Actually, it was not demolished. It just fell down on its own, I believe, <laughs> is what happened. <laughs> but, but, uh, yeah, but, yeah, that was uh, that was the worst by a distance. Well, speaking of the worst, that might be the worst episode of the week in sports cards we've ever done, and I'm so proud of it. Uh, you all cannot appreciate the minimal lack of effort. I don't even know who this guy is in the line of the phone, but, you know, he picked up, and luckily enough, he knew a bit about sports cars. So here you go. <sighs> Graham Goodwin, that was fun. We, we should do this more often, maybe once a week. Give the show a title. Once a week, I think we should do that. Maybe call it something like the once a week in sports cars. But uh, Marshall Pruitt, welcome back. Um, listeners, welcome back. And we'll do what we can to get this back on an even keel. And when I'm not here, we'll call it the Stephen Keel in reference to young Mr. Kilby, who's been a fine stand-in. And thank you to him. Thank you to Cooper Tires. Thank you to the Justice Brothers. Thank you to everyone who sent in great questions. And as we close, if we did not get to your questions, you really want whatever wrong or inane answer provided by Mr. Goodwin or I, send them in again. Sometimes it takes two, three. Have we gotten a four? I think three might be the most we've ever had, but don't hesitate to send those in again, and we will get to them as quickly as we can. I am Marshall Pruitt. That is Graham Goodwin. This is The Week in Sports Cars. We'll speak to you, hopefully sooner next week.